This is Audible. Audible.com presents the Senate Judiciary Committee's hearings on the nomination of Judge John Roberts to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. We invite you to visit Audible.com for the best downloadable audiobooks, as well as subscriptions and podcasts of top audio programs, including The New York Times, This American Life, The Wall Street Journal, and The New Yorker. Now proceed with the confirmation hearing of Judge Roberts to be Chief Justice of the United States. Uh, one uh, preliminary statement. I uh, noted after the session yesterday uh, that there was some comment about my statement when I uh, asked Senator Biden to allow you to continue to respond or to respond at all and he then interjected that you were misleading the committee. Uh, my statement was, while they may be misleading, they are his answers. It was in the subjunctive, and I was not suggesting that your answers were misleading. But uh, in that moment, the object was to let you answer. If uh, somebody wants to characterize them one way or another, uh, they can do that, and you can respond, and I was not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that they were misleading, and you picked it right up and said that they uh, weren't misleading. Uh, there are sometimes differences of opinion between the person asking the question and the person answering the question, but there was no doubt in my mind as to the fact that they were not misleading. We now uh, proceed with the final two senators on the opening a uh, 30-minute round, and I recognize uh, Senator Brownback. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman, and I uh, How are you, welcome you, morning. Uh, Judge Roberts, uh, Mrs. Roberts. Glad to have you here this morning. You're only two away from uh, the end <laughs> of this round, and we'll see how much uh, further it goes. I hope you had a good night's sleep, and um, I thought you had a great uh, presentation yesterday. I want to compliment you on the number of areas that you answered. Uh, you went... Uh, my colleague from Texas went through the number of areas and commented about that yesterday, and I was very impressed with the uh, breadth, obviously, of your knowledge and, uh, and your forthcomingness. How many of these areas you answered where prior nominees had not put answers forth? And uh, so I think you've revealed a great deal and yet not gone into those areas of uh, active judicial um, action where there could be a lot of things coming forward. I also want to compliment the chairman, uh, Chairman Spector, who originates from my home state and his stamina. Uh, he's uh, been going through um, a lot lately, the chairman has, and yet uh, you've pressed this committee so that uh, many of us have difficulty keeping up with you. Uh, and I want to compliment you on that stamina and the ability that you, uh, that you show. You always set a fast pace. Well, Senator Brownback, being a Kansan yourself, you know where that stamina came from because uh, I'm a Kansan myself. It's standing in the wind all day long. You just have to lean into it. It, makes it strengthens you quite a bit. I want to uh, go to a few areas that you haven't answered uh, questions on yet. Uh, it may be a surprise to some watching if there are any areas left, but actually there are quite a few. And with your service on the court, you know on the bench, you're going to get such a range of issues and topics that are going to come up. Uh, it is noteworthy to me that uh, a majority, a, a supermajority of committee members have asked you about privacy uh, and leading up to questions on Roe, which I think only makes the point that this is an issue should be left into the political system and not into the judicial system where it is today. That's something 
you'll have to resolve as issues like partial birth abortion come up to you. But the very dominance of the question bespeaks of its interest within the political system and why it's best resolved within the political system and not the judicial one on a constitutional basis, but I'll, I'll get to that later. I want to take you first to the takings clause issue. There's a recent case that came up that really shocked the system, and you talked about shocks to the system when the judiciary acts. Uh, this is one that did it in the Kelo versus New London case. Uh, in perhaps no other area of the law is stability more important than in the area of private property and property rights. Even before the existence of the United States, William Blackstone, that famous English legal authority, stated this. He stated, quote, the law of the land postpones even public necessity to the sacred and invaluable rights of private property. Mindful of the sentiment and the excesses of the king, yet aware of the needs of a new and growing country, the framers of our Constitution established a strict limitation on the government's ability to take private property. The takings clause of the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution provides that private property may not, quote, be taken for public use without just compensation. We all know those famous words. Traditionally, this has meant that the government had to pay fair value when it sought to confiscate a homeowner's property in order to build a road or other public good. But now the notion of public use has taken a different hue to it. In this Kelo versus the City of New London case, the Supreme Court had decided whether a private economic development plan, which a city government believed would yield greater economic benefits, qualified as a public use. So you had private property taken by the state and given back to private individuals, but it was having a greater economic use, and whether that was sufficient under the takings clause. In the words of the court, this economic development plan, quote, was projected, not resulted, but projected to create an excess of a thousand jobs to increase taxes and other revenues. On this basis, the court upheld the government confiscation as a public use, and there was an outroar across the country. We thought that property, property rights, private property rights were established and set, and now it appears as if it's not that the system is different. You can take private property by the government's eminent domain ability and give it back to a private individual. Justice O'Connor in her eloquent dissent quotes this, and nothing is to prevent the state now from replacing any Motel 6 with a Ritz-Carlton, any home with a shopping mall, or any farm with a factory. It is remarkable how this issue is stirred, as I mentioned, great criticism I'm pleased the chairman's going to hold a hearing on it this next week. Judge Roberts, what is your understanding of the state of the takings clause jurisprudence now after Kelo? Isn't it now the case that it's much easier for one man's home to become another man's castle? Well, um, under the Kelo decision, uh, which, as you explained, was interpreting the public use requirement uh, in the Constitution, um, uh, the majority, and of course, as you mentioned, it was a closely divided case, uh, the majority explained its reasoning by uh, noting the difficulty in drawing the line. Everybody would agree, as you suggest, to build a road or to build a, a railroad, uh, to situate a military base if that's the only suitable place, that the power of eminent domain uh, is appropriate in those instances. I think people agree further that when you're talking about a hospital or, or something like that, uh, that satisfies public use. 
Um, and I think the reason, uh, the reason the court gave, really, in the majority opinion, was that it's kind of hard to, to draw the line. Uh, the dissent, uh, Justice O'Connor's dissent, uh, uh, didn't think it was that hard. Uh, uh, she focused on the question of whether it was going to be a use open to the public, as you know, a road, a hospital, use for the public, like in a military base, or private. And she would have drawn the line there and said, even public benefits that derive from different private uses don't justify that, that aspect of it. Um, there was a uh, caveat in the Kilo majority. They said they were only deciding this in the context of an urban redevelopment plan. They reserve the question if it's just taking one parcel and giving it to somebody else, not part of a broader plan. That question was still open. Uh, and as you said, there's been a lot of reaction to it. I understand some states have even legislated uh, restricting their power. And we are considering it here in the Congress. And I think um, uh, that's a very appropriate approach to consider. In other words, the court was not saying you have to have this power, you have to exercise this power. What the court was saying is there is this power, and then it's up to the legislature to determine whether it wants that to be available, whether it wants it to be available in limited circumstances, or whether it wants to go back to uh, the, an understanding like, as reflected in the dissent, that this is not an appropriate uh, uh, public use. Uh, that, that leaves the, the, the ball in the court of the legislature. And I, I think it's uh, reflective of what is often the case, um, and people sometimes lose sight of, that uh, this body and legislative bodies in the states uh, are protectors of the people's rights as well. It's not simply a question of legislating to address particular needs, but you obviously have to also be cognizant of the people's rights, and you can protect them in situations where the court has determined, as it did uh, five to four in Kilo, that they are not going to draw that line. You still have the authority to draw. I'm, I understand the authority we maintain. What I'm curious about is your view is, does that right exist? I would not think Blackstone would agree that that right uh, exists for the public to take private property for, public, for private use. Well, in, in, you know, the first year in law school, we all read the decision in Calder against Bull, uh, which has this famous statement that the government may not take the property of A and give it to B. Um, uh, and that certainly was quoted in the, in the dissent, in Justice O'Connor's dissent. Um, uh, the Kelo majority, though, said if a legislature wants to exercise that power, basically that the court's not going to second-guess the judgment that this is a public use. Um, and I do think that imposes a heavy responsibility on the legislature to determine what they're doing and whether it is a public use or if it's simply transferring from one private party to the next. But um, I take it you're not going to respond whether or not that, that right is, uh, exists under the Constitution? Well, I, I, uh, the Kelo decision obviously was just decided last year, and, and I don't think I should comment whether it was correct or not. Um, it stands as a precedent of the court. It did leave open the question of whether it applied in a situation that was not a broader uh, redevelopment plan, but, um, uh, I, and if the issue does come back before the court, I need to be able to address it without having previously commented on it. Let me take you to another area that's, um, that's stewing here in legislative bodies, uh, certainly across the United States and certainly Congress, and that's the issue of checks and balances of the court. Um, 
any civic student can talk about uh, checks and balances within the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branch. And we all know that Congress, when it passes a bill, can be checked by a veto of the president. And we know the president's power can be uh, checked by the power of the purse in the Congress, those checks and balances. And when popular elected branches of government enact bills contrary to the Constitution, the courts can strike the, the law down by exercising judicial review. Uh, one curiosity, though, especially given the broad sweep of judicial power in America today and the, the angst that that stirs among so many people, is what check there is on the court and what checks there exist on the court. And it seems to me critical that we have this discussion uh, at this point in, at point in time. First check on the judiciary, of course, is the president's ability to populate the bench, of which you are a nominee, and our ability on advising consent. The greater problem arises once a federal judge is on the bench, and what's in Article 3, Section 1, and this is getting a lot of discussion now here in this body, where judges hold office during good behavior, which I know you will have, and effectively have life tenure, but that's not really an effective check in the system. There is also another area that you wrote about uh, when you were uh, working within the Reagan uh, administration, that was the ability of Congress to, live it, to limit the authority and the review uh, of, con of the courts of what you would have. Um, and I want to look at that in particular. It's the power to define jurisdiction that uh, we would have. It's in Article 3, Section 2, and I just want to read this because I don't think it's well understood as the check and balance, and I want to get your reaction to it. This is Article 3, Section 2. In all cases affecting ambassadors, other public ministers, councils, and those in which a state may be a party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. No question there. goes on. In all the other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction both as to law and fact with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. This last phrase, you know, is, is known as the Exceptions Clause. You wrote about this when you were in the Reagan White House, uh, about this Exception Clause, and you stated this. It stands as a plenary grant of power to Congress to make exceptions to the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. The clause, by its terms, contains no limit. This is your, these are your words. And, quote, this clear and unequivocal language is the strongest argument in favor of congressional power and the inevitable stumbling block for those who would read the clause in a more restrictive fashion. Now, I understand that you also argued on policy grounds this is not a good idea for the Congress to do, but would you agree with those earlier statements that you made about the nature of this power being a plenary power of the Congress uh, and stands as a clear uh, uh, standard in favor of the Congress to be able to limit the jurisdiction of the courts? Well, um, you know, Senator, that that... Uh, writing was done at the request of the Attorney General, and he asked me specifically to present the arguments in favor of that power. He was receiving from elsewhere in the department a memorandum saying that this was unconstitutional, the exercise of that authority. He wanted to see the other view before making up his mind for the department, so I was tasked to present the arguments in favor of constitutionality. And as you say, they focused and start with the language in the Constitution, the Exceptions Clause, uh, which is as you read it, um, and I went on to explain that it had been interpreted in the famous case of ex-party McArdle around the time of the Civil War, which seemed to suggest that the framers uh, meant what that language says on its, on its face. Uh, also, though, a later case, uh, United States against Klein, 
suggested that there were limits uh, on the power of Congress in this area. It is a central debate uh, among legal scholars, um, uh, the scope of that authority. The argument on the other side, uh, the one that the Attorney General adopted, uh, rather than the argument he asked me to present, is that it is the essential function of the Supreme Court to provide uniformity and consistency in federal law, and that if you carve out exceptions in its core constitutional area, that you deprive it of that ability and that that itself violates the constitutional scheme. It's, a, it's an area in which most distinguished scholars line up on either side uh, because it does call into question basic relationships between the Congress uh, and, and the courts. Um, could, could that language be any clearer, though, in the exceptions clause? I mean, no. I understand how legal scholars maybe can debate what a single word means, but that language is pretty clear, isn't it? The argument on the other side says that it's intended to apply to, well, for example, we have clear situations uh, in the lower federal courts, like the amount in controversy, those cases are excluded. Uh, you can have rules about timing, you know. If you, uh, the, the question is whether it was intended to address four constitutional areas or simply more administrative uh, matters. Uh, the argument on the other side says if you get into the core constitutional areas, uh, that undermines the Supreme Court's authority and that the framers didn't intend that. It's then what check is there on the court's power? Well, I think the primary check uh, is the same one that uh, Alexander Hamilton talked about in the Federalist Papers, because the exact argument was raised. Uh, in the debates about the Constitution. People were concerned about a new judiciary. Uh, uh, what was it going to do? They were concerned that it might deprive them of their rights. And of course, Hamilton's famous answer was the judiciary was going to be the least dangerous branch because it had no power. It didn't have the sword. It didn't have the purse. Uh, and the judges were not going to be able to deprive people of their liberty because they were going to be bound down by rules and precedents. They were going to just interpret the law. And if judges just interpreted the law, there was no threat to liberty from the judicial branch. So I would say the primary check on the courts has always been judicial self-restraint and a recognition on the part of judges that they have a limited task, that they are insulated from the people. They're given life tenure, as you mentioned, precisely because they're not shaping policy. They're not supposed to be responsive. They're supposed to just interpret the law. And I guess that's the area that has so many people concerned, is if the judiciary does not show restraint, and judicial restraint is the limitation on the courts, such as in the takings clause debate we just, uh, just had, really, where the court is saying, well, no, this is a broader power, uh, that if you don't restrain yourselves, then who, then who does uh, within this system? Obviously, there's restraints on the Congress. There's restraints on the president. And we, we like that system. We want that check and balance system. I think the framers put that exceptions clause and other things in there for clear purpose uh, and for, for clear reason. But let me take you on to a, another area, because that one I think you're going to see a lot of action as you get pushing back and forth between the three branches of government and a, a number of people feeling like the judiciary is, has not shown judicial restraint uh, in recent years. I want to take you to the now probably the most contentious social issue of our day, and you've been debating and discussing it a great deal here uh, already. Uh, issue of abortion. It's at the um, 
root of much of the debate taking place in the country today. It uh, has inflamed people. It has gotten them involved in the political process, folks that probably wouldn't have been previously because the only way they saw that they could affect the system was get involved and try to elect a president, uh, Senate. Um, it was the president's lead applause line the last election cycle was I'll point judges will be judges, not legislators. Uh, that's an applause line at a political rally should say something about people's angst towards what the courts have done and particularly then and rooted in this issue of abortion. The very root of the issue is the legal status of the unborn child. This is an old debate and whether that child is a person or is a piece of property is the root of that debate. Our legal system, everything's one of the two. You're either a person or you're a piece of property. You're a person, you have rights. If you're a piece of property, you can be done with as your master chooses. And I believe everyone agrees that the unborn child is alive. And most agree that biologically it is a life. It's a separate genetic entity. But many will dispute whether it's a person. These may be legal definitions, but that's the way people would define it. Could you state your view as to whether the unborn child is a person or is a piece of property? Well, Senator, because cases are going to come up in this area, and that could be the focus of legal argument in those cases, I don't think it would be appropriate for me to comment on that one way or another. Um, I will confront issues in this area as I would confront issues in any area that come before the court. Uh, and that would be to fully and fairly consider the arguments presented and decide them according to the rule of law. Um, and I don't think it would be appropriate for me to express uh, views in an area that before the court. I hope you would agree with me that this is at the core of the issue. Obviously, the competition between the, the uh, woman's right to choose and the legal status of the unborn. And it permeates so much of our debate, and it's why a lot of us believe it should be within the political system to discuss. I want to point out one thing uh, to you, and I, I don't think this probably needs to be addressed, but I want to uh, point it out. In uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, it's been cited yesterday, along with the Brown decision, of which my state is the proud home state host of Brown versus Board of Education. And I personally uh, knew two of the lawyers that practiced in that, uh, in that case, and they were noble, noble gentlemen. They overturned Plessy, as you knew, and as you know, which was an 1896 case. So Plessy had stood for nearly 60 years. We've had a discussion about this um, super stare decisis uh, issue, and I just want to hold up a quick chart, uh, if I could, if I've got it back here, uh, the notion that because Roe has not been overturned in 30-some cases, makes it a super stare decisis, Plessy had not been overturned in a series of cases over a period of, of 60 years, uh, where the court at each time looked at it, discussed it, decided against overturning it. Uh, yet I don't think anybody would uh, agree that Plessy shouldn't have been overturned. And certainly not anybody from my state, where the host state of Brown versus the Board of Education. But the notion that by tenure, a, a lay standing becomes a superstare decisis, or by number of times that it's been looked at, it becomes a superstare decisis, I just, I don't think finds a basis in law nor in practicality, as you noted. And some of these decisions up there, I'd point out to you, are um, uh, pretty onerous statements that the court put forward itself 
uh, in, uh, in how they upheld Plessy for a number of years. And yet, thank goodness that the court overruled it in the Brown versus the Board of Education's uh, case that, that it eventually, uh, eventually decided. I want to also point out to you something. You talked a lot about it yesterday, and I really appreciate this, about facts matter in a case. And judges decide cases, and cases are built on facts. And you have the facts and you have the law. Uh, but the facts matter. There's no one in my state that wouldn't be honored to show you the, the school building where uh, uh, Brown versus the Board of Education was decided. We just dedicated it last year. The president was there, 50th year anniversary. You can see the path where the little girl walked uh, to the school and had to walk by the all-white school to get there. And you look at that set of facts and, it, and, it's and you look at it and you say, that's wrong. And you're ennobled that we no longer do that. I held a hearing earlier this year on the factual setting of Roe versus Wade and Doe v. Bolton, the factual setting of these two cases. The two plaintiffs in those cases testified in front of the Judiciary Subcommittee that I was there and Senator Feingold. Both of them talked about the false statements of record that were those cases were built upon, the false statements. Listen to this statement by uh, Sandra Kano. She's Doe of Doe v. Bolton. This is what she said. June 23, 2005, in Judiciary Subcommittee that I chaired, quote, Doe v. Bolden falsely created the health exception that led to abortion on demand and partial birth abortion. This is her statements now. I, Sandra Kano, only sought legal assistance to get a divorce from my husband and to get my children from foster care. Abortion never crossed my mind, although apparently was on the mind of the attorney from whom I sought help. Further quote, at no time did I ever have an abortion. I did not seek an abortion, nor do I believe in abortion. This is Sandra Kano, the Doe of Dovey Bolton. And then she goes on to say, Dovey Bolton is based on lies and deceit. It needs to be retired, retried or overturned, which she's trying to get it retried. Doe is against my wishes. Abortion is wrong. That's Doe of Dovey Bolton. Now here's Norma McCorvey of Roe of Roe v. Wade. This is just the factual setting. I believe I was used and abused by the court system in America. Instead of helping a woman in Roe v. Wade, I brought destruction to me and millions of women throughout the nation. Sandra McCorvey. Quote, this is really troubling too. I made up the story that I had been raped to help justify my abortion. Sandra McCorvey. Facts. Facts. In Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton falsified statements. And upon this, we've based this constitutional right that's been found that we now have 40 million fewer children in the country to bless us with. And I want to take another point on that to you. We've talked a lot about the disability community, and well, we should, and the protection needed for the disability community. And that's important, and because I think it really it helps people that need help, but it helps the rest of us to be more, much more human and caring. Senator Kennedy is helping me with a bill uh, because a number of children never get here that have disabilities. Unborn children prenatally diagnosed with Down syndrome and other disabilities. I don't know if you know this, but there was a recent analysis, and 80 to 90 percent of children prenatally diagnosed with Down syndrome never get here never get here. They're, they're aborted. 
in the system. And people just say, look, this child's got difficulties. And we even have waiting lists in America of people today willing to adopt children with Down syndrome. And we will protect that child as well we should. The Americans with Disability Act and other issues when they get here. But so many, much of the time and with our increased ability of genetic testing, they don't get here. Diagnosed in the uh, womb system that encourages this child to be destroyed at that stage. And this is, this is all in the records. And we are the poorer for it as a society. All the members of this body know a young man with Down syndrome named Jimmy. Maybe you've met him even. He runs the elevator that takes the senators to up and down on the Senate floors. His uh, warm smile welcomes us every day. We're a better body for him. He told me the other day, uh, he frequently gives me a hug in the elevator afterwards. I know he does. Senator Hatch often, too, who kindly gives him ties, some of which I question the taste of, Warren, but uh, he kindly gives, uh, gives ties. He doesn't have to get personal. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy said to me the other day after he hugged me, he said, shh, don't tell my supervisor. They're telling me I'm hugging too many people. <laughs> and, and yet we're ennobled by him and what he does and how he lifts up our humanity. And 80 to 90 percent of the kids in this country like Jimmy never get here. What, what does that do to us? What does that say about us? And I would just ask you, Judge Roberts, to consider, and probably you can't answer here today, whether the individuals with disabilities have the same constitutional rights that you and I share while they're in the womb. Well, uh, Senator, I appreciate your uh, thoughts on the, on the subject very much. Um, I do think, though, since those precise questions could come before the court, that that is in the area that I have to refrain from answering. Now, I just... I hope one thinks about people like Jimmy and a system now that scientifically can, can figure out the nature of uh, this child's physical or mental state at an early point and is, is having many of them destroyed at that point in time. And that's, that's taking place in our, in our country today. I uh, have little time left. I want to uh, say one final thing to you, and, and, uh, and I appreciate you, and I appreciate your inability to answer some of these questions. They're, they're tough questions, and they're questions that are live in front of us as a society. I would just uh, ask you really about your mentor, or one of your mentors, and uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, who uh, I admired greatly, admired, admired for his demeanor. Um, I. Uh, as you go on, and I uh, anticipate you will be approved to be the Chief Justice of the United States, um, I would ask you just if you could briefly to respond, how, how do you view his mentorship of you and your taking over if you are confirmed as Chief Justice? I mean, what, what does that mean personally to you, and how will it impact you as Chief Justice? Well, it, it makes the opportunity uh, a very special one, as I've said before. Um, the chief uh, was a mentor to many people, uh, and like many great mentors, of course, he led by example, uh, not by precept. Um, uh, his example of uh, how he dealt with other people, uh, not just other justices, uh, but everybody in the courthouse, um, including the 
the law clerks uh, in an open, uh, friendly, uh, balanced way uh, was an example for everybody there. Um, substantively, his approach uh, to the role of a judge and the appropriate role of the court um, is, I think, a very important example. He was somebody who appreciated the limits, uh, the appropriate limits on the judicial role and the judicial power. Uh, and he was always careful and conscious of that. He was always asking whether or not this was something that it was appropriate for the courts to do. Um, and I do think it's important for judges at every level to always ask that question because, as we had talked earlier, uh, judicial self-restraint is the key check on the authority of the court. Um, and if you're not asking yourself that question at every stage, is this an appropriate thing for me to do as a judge, uh, then there's a great danger that you'll lose sight of that important judicial self-restraint. Thank you. And uh, God bless you and your service to the country and your family. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, Senator Brownback. Uh, Senator Leahy has a doctor's appointment this morning, but will be joining us shortly. We now turn to Senator Coburn for his 30 minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, and again, welcome. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. Uh, there were so many legal terms yesterday bandied around that I was having trouble grabbing hold of. I thought I'd start out with medical terms this morning and see if you could keep up. Uh, I, no. I, I also uh, thought it was interesting, since you've been prophesied to have 35 years, that's 12,675 12, days that the chairman uh, prophesies that you'll be there. You've passed three of them, and congratulations on number three. Uh, I want to go to something that Senator Kyle talked with you about, and I was very pleased with your answer. He asked you about uh, referencing and uh, using uh, preference uh, to select and pick uh, precedents from foreign law yesterday, and, and I thought you gave a, a very reassuring answer to the American public. You, you, you based your answer on two points. One is that the democratic theory is that in this country, with our law, the people are involved in that, both through the Senate, the, uh, the House, and the president who appoints you. The other point you made is that, that relying on foreign precedent does not confine judges. Uh, and I, I just want to kind of ask a couple of questions. Number one, the oath that you took for your appellate position and the oath that you will take states the following, that I, John Roberts, do solemnly swear that I will administer justice without respect to persons and do equal right to the poor and to the rich, and that I will faithfully and impartially discharge and perform all the duties incumbent upon me, John Roberts, under the Constitution and the laws of the United States. So help me God. My question uh, relates to the Constitution. And what is said in Article 3, that judges both of the Supreme and inferior courts shall hold their offices during good behavior. My question to you is, relying on foreign precedent and selecting and choosing a foreign precedent to create a bias outside of the laws of this country, is that good behavior? Well, I, uh, for the reasons I stated yesterday, I don't think it's a, um, a good approach. Um, um, the, I wouldn't accuse judges or justices who disagree with that, though, of violating their, their oath. I'd accuse them of, of getting it wrong on that point, and I'd hope to sit down with them and, and uh, debate it and uh, uh, reason about it. But um, uh, I, I think the justices who reach a contrary result on those questions uh, are operating in good faith and uh, trying, as, as I do on the court I am on now, 
to live up to that oath that you you read. I, I wouldn't want to suggest that they're that they're not doing that. I again, I would think they're they're not getting it right in that particular case and uh, with that particular approach, and would hope to be able to uh, sit down and and argue with it, as I suspect they'd like to sit down and debate with me, but I, I wouldn't suggest they're not operating in good faith to comply with Can the American people count on you to not use foreign precedents in your decision-making on the Supreme Court? I, I, you know, I will follow the Supreme Court's precedents uh, uh, consistent with the principles of stare decisis. And there are cases in this area, of course, that's why we're having the debate. The court has uh, looked at those. Um, I, I think it's fair to say those uh, in the prior opinions, those are not determinative uh, in the sense that the president turned entirely on foreign law. Uh, so it's not a question of whether or not you'd be departing from these cases if you decided not to use foreign law. Um, and for the reasons I gave yesterday, um, uh, I, I I'm going to be looking. That, and I, I respect that. And I know that you can't be in a position to make a judgment on that. But I, again, for the record, I want to read what the Constitution says. That the judges, both of the Supreme and Inferior Court, shall hold their offices during good behavior, and that the oath that they take references only the Constitution and the laws of this country. And, and uh, if anything, I would like to send a message uh, that that's what their oath states. Uh, and, and this ju judicial restraint that you've spoken of, I believe, uh, includes that oath and the definition that our founders believed when they said, here's what you should base your decisions on, is the constitutional life of the United States and the laws. The other thing, you, uh, yesterday you had an exchange with uh, Senator Feingold uh, on, on a case, um, and I think it was the Gonzaga case, and, and you, 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 you talked about congressional intent. And I'd like for you to, for a moment, to spend a minute giving us your opinion, and you may refuse to do so if you care to. Uh, that would be your privilege. But one of my observations is that oftentimes we don't do a very good job with the laws that we write because we're not very clear. Uh, sometimes we're lazy. Sometimes we are politically expedient. But oftentimes the very problems that you as a court make uh, controversial decisions over because we've not done a good job. And I just like your thoughts as to if you were to critique things that we could do better to make your job uh, easier and clearer, uh, what would you have to say to that? Well, um, sitting where I am, I'm not terribly inclined to be critical of uh, <laughs> the Congress. Um, and wouldn't be as uh, uh, in any event. But um, a lot of what judges spend their time doing, uh, not always in the momentous constitutional cases that we've been talking about, but sometimes in very mundane cases, is the effort to discern congressional intent, uh, trying to figure out what Congress meant when it used specific words that were passed by both houses and signed by the president uh, into law. Uh, now, some of that is, is entirely unavoidable. Uh, the complexity of human endeavor is such that situations are going to arise that are not clearly answered by even the most specific language. Um, and that's to be expected, and judges uh, have to address those situations. But as you suggest your, your, yourself in your, in your question, there are situations where uh, uh, sometimes Congress punch the issue to the courts. Uh, they can't come to an agreement about 
how a particular provision should be applied. And so folks who want it to go one way uh, and folks who want it to go the other way just sort of leave it ambiguous or leave it out and, and uh, take their chances in court. Um, and obviously that's a different situation. And uh, I think all judges uh, would tell you that to the extent Congress can address the issues and resolve the issues that are the policy questions entrusted to them, it, it makes it a lot easier for the courts uh, to decide the cases that do come up because then it's just a question of looking at the facts and the law is clear and you apply the facts uh, to the law. Uh, if the, the law is unclear, uh, uh, that makes it uh, that much more difficult. Um, and, uh, you know, as I said, obviously a lot of these situations are unavoidable, but there are certainly, a, and, and the, the Supreme Court has addressed uh, many of these, the issue of implied rights of action in the past, and they were getting case after case after case, and they finally adopted an approach in the early 1980s that said, look, we're not, we're not going to imply rights of action anymore. Congress, if you want somebody to have a right of action, just say so. Um, uh, but uh, this is not a good thing for the courts to be doing, deciding whether a particular right of action should be implied or not. And after the court developed that jurisprudence in the early 80s, um, uh, you know, the, the hope was, and I think it has been realized to a large extent, that there would be more addressing of that question in Congress, which is where it should be addressed. And, and you would agree we could do a better job? Well, I, I'm sure everyone's doing as good a job as they, as they can. Uh, and uh, that, That's the first answer I worry about, that, that you've given <laughs> the whole testimony. Let, let me go to another area. Um, as I mentioned in my opening statement, I'm a, a practicing physician, kind of an old-time GP. I've delivered 4,000 babies. I take care of people at the end of life, at the beginning of life. Um, <clears throat> in all 50 states, death is recognized and defined as the irreversible cessation of brain and heart activity. Do you have any reason to dispute that? Um, I don't know the medical terms or definitions, but uh, no. I mean, if that's the law in the states, that's not to say that it has any particular legal significance. Right. I'm not. I'm not asking you about legal significance. Uh, would you agree that the opposite of being dead is being alive? All right, Piper. In the, yes. Again, it. Uh, don't mean to be overly cautious in answering. <laughs> you know I'm going somewhere. Um, one of the problems I have is coming up with with just the common sense and logic that if if brainwave and heartbeat signifies life, the absence of them signifies death then the presence of them certainly signifies life. Uh, and to say otherwise, uh, logically, is, is schizophrenic. Uh, and, and that's how I view a lot of the, the decisions that have come from the Supreme Court on the issue of abortion. Uh, and and I, I, I won't press you on this issue. I know you can't, but I, for the listeners of this hearing, if, in fact, life is the presence of a heartbeat and brainwave, it's important for everybody in the country to know that at 16 days post-conception, a heartbeat is present. And that at 41 days, right now, we can assure ourselves that brain activity 
and brain waves are present. And as the technology improves, we're going to see that come earlier and earlier. I make that point because so many of the decisions of the Supreme Court have been made in a vacuum of the scientific knowledge of what life is, when personhood is, when it begins, when it doesn't, when it exists, when it doesn't. And, and it belies the scientific facts and medical facts that are out there today. And, and so that, that was for your information uh, and, and my ability to put forth a philosophy that I believe would solve a lot of the controversy in this country. Um, I want to cover one area uh, that was discussed yesterday um, uh, where the implication was made that uh, that you might have ruled on a case uh, violating a judicial ethic, and, and that was the Hamden versus Rumsfeld case. Um, uh, Senator Feingold asked you questions about the case. You invoked the canon the code of conduct of uh, U.S. judges that prohibits you from talking about a pending case. And I would like, uh, Mr. Chairman, a copy of that canon to be placed in the record. Uh, Without objection, so ordered. And canon three provides that a judge should perform the duties of the office impartially and diligently. The judicial duties of a judge take precedence over all other activities. In performing the duties prescribed by law, the judge should adhere to the following standards. And I'm uh, educating. Uh, adjudicative responsibilities. There's another one of those legal words I'm having trouble getting my hands around. A judge should avoid public comment on the merits of a pending or impending action requiring similar restraint by court personnel subject to the judge's direction and control. The official commentary to Canon 3A6 provides the admonition against public comment about the merits of a pending or impending action until completion of the appellate process. I would also note that any criticism of your participation in this case is unwarranted. Numerous law professors who specialize in legal ethics have stated that you in no way have violated any ethics rules simply because you were considered for another judgeship. The opinion was finalized well before you met with the president, I believe that's correct, or was, or was offered this nomination. Is that correct? Yes. The argument, the initial vote, and the drafting of the opinion all took place before this, there was a Supreme Court vacancy at all. Is that correct? Yes. Um, you did not write an opinion on that case. Is that correct? I joined uh, Judge Randolph's opinion. Right, but you did not write a separate opinion on no. that case. That's right. And I would like to also enter into the record the... Uh, Nonpartisan ethics ethicists who agree that Judge Roberts did not violate any ethics rules. <coughs> Without objection, it would made a part of the record. I want to go to one other area uh, that I have some concern about. Uh, uh, I know my concerns opposite from some of those uh, uh, who have a, a different philosophy of life, but many of the questions uh, posed to you have focused on our concerns about an activist judiciary. Uh, my opening statement expressed some of those concerns. Uh, however, I'm equally concerned about an activist Congress uh, that goes beyond its bounds, a, a, a Congress that routinely ignores its own constitutional boundaries. Historically, the debate about the role and scope of Congress is focused on the General Welfare Clause. Uh, as we all know, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1 of the Constitution gives Congress the power to provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. The Tenth Amendment also spells out limitations on con congressional power. We had the discussion yesterday 
uh, on the toad, I believe. Uh, the Tenth Amendment states, the power not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. And I want to give you a quote that James Madison said because in his wisdom he anticipated that we would try to stretch the definition of the founders. And, and he wrote, with respect to the words general welfare, I have always regarded them as qualified by the detail of powers connected with them. To take them in a literal an unlimited sense would be a metamorphosis of the Constitution into a character which there is a host of proofs was not contemplated by its creators. In Federalist Paper 45, Madison writes, the powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and infinite. Do you agree with James Madison's interpretation of the General Welfare Clause that the powers of the Congress should be fundamentally limited, or do you agree with the modern prevailing wisdom of both political parties, particularly appropriators, who believe Congress' role is fundamentally unlimited? Well, I agree with Madison's view uh, in general that the Constitution does contain limitations on the federal authority. That uh, the general welfare clause, and in particular the necessary and proper clause, of course, have been interpreted uh, in many of Chief Justice John Marshall's early opinions uh, to recognize, though, that the scope of authority given to Congress is broad and broad enough to confront the problems that, in Chief Justice John Marshall's case, were confronted by a young nation and helped to bind it together as a nation, and broad enough today to confront the problems uh, that Congress addresses. But the notion that the Constitution was one of limited powers, uh, albeit broad under the Necessary and Proper Clause, uh, and even the General Welfare Clause as interpreted by Chief Justice John Marshall in his early opinions, uh, doesn't, that recognition doesn't uh, undermine the framers' uh, essential vision uh, that we are dealing with a federal system in which vast powers reside with the states and that the federal government is one of limited powers, broad in obviously particular areas and broad under the necessary and proper clause, but limited powers nonetheless. Thank you. Uh, I just have um, one other comment. Uh, as you have been before our committee, <clears throat> I, I've tried to use my medical skills of observation of body language to ascertain your uncomfortableness and, 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 and uh, ill at ease with questions and responses. And, and uh, I've honed that over about 23, 24 years. Okay. And uh, the other thing that I believe is integrity is at the basis of what we want in judges. And uh, I will tell you that I'm very pleased, both in my observational capabilities as a physician, to know that your answers have been honest and forthright as I watch the rest of your body respond to the stress that you're under. But I'm also pleased with our president uh, that he's had the wisdom to pick somebody of such stature and such integrity. Uh, without integrity, what you say here means nothing. And that's the very foundation at which I believe you've based your life. And I'm pleased to have you before us. And I thank you. And Mr. Chairman, I yield back the balance of my time. <clears throat> thank you very much, uh, Senator Coburn.
Uh, Judge Roberts, uh, before taking up the subject of the confrontation, we now proceed to the 20-minute round for each senator. Before taking up the uh, issue of the confrontation and clash between the Congress and the Supreme Court, I want to pick up a few strands from, uh, from yesterday's testimony. Uh, and near the end of my questioning, I commented on the case of United States versus Dickerson, where the Chief Justice had made a modification of his earlier objections to Miranda and said that the Miranda warnings ought to be upheld, uh, contrasting his view in 1974 in a Supreme Court decision with his view in the year 2000, saying that Miranda should not be overruled because it has been embedded in routine police practices uh, and become a part of our national culture. And that has uh, all of the uh, earmarks of a doctrine of a living constitution. Uh, dissenting in Poe versus Ullman, Justice John Marshall Harlan made one of the famous statements on uh, this issue, saying that the commenting on liberty, the quote, the traditions from which it is developed, quote, that tradition is a living thing. And my question to you is, do you regard the uh, evolution of, of various interpretations on liberty as a living thing, as Justice Harlan did, and as Justice Rehnquist appeared to on the Miranda issue? Well, I think the framers, when they used broad language, um, like liberty, um, like uh, due process, uh, like unreasonable with respect to searches and seizures. They were crafting a document that they intended to apply in a meaningful way down the ages. As they said in the preamble, it was designed to secure the blessings of liberty for their posterity. They intended it to apply to, to changing conditions. And I think that in that sense, uh, uh, it, it is a concept that is alive in the sense that it applies, and they intended it to apply in a particular way, but they intended it to apply uh, down through the ages. Well, when you talk about intent, I think that's a pretty tough interpretation. When the Equal Protection Clause was passed by the Senate in 1868, the Senate galleries were segregated, blacks on one side and whites on the other. So that couldn't have been their uh, intent, and uh, uh, the interpretation, uh, which occurs later, uh, uh, really is uh, captured by uh, Justice Cardozo in the case of Palco versus Connecticut, a case which impressed me enormously back in the law school days when talking about uh, the constitutional evolution, referred to it as uh, expressing values which are, quote, the very essence of a scheme of order to liberty, close quote, quote, principles of justice so rooted in the traditions and conscience of our people as to be ranked as fundamental. Uh, would you agree with uh, the Cardoza statement of jurisprudence, which I just quoted? Well, the general approach of uh, recognizing the values that inform the interpretation of the Constitution, it applies to modern times. But just to take the example that you gave of the Equal Protection uh, Clause, the framers chose broad terms of broad applicability, and they state a broad principle. 
and the fact that it may have been inconsistent with their practice uh, may have meant that they were adopting a broad principle that was inconsistent with their practice and their practices would have to change as they did with respect to segregation in the Senate galleries, with respect to segregation in other areas. But when they adopt broad terms and broad principles, we should hold them to their word and imply them consistent with those terms and those principles. And that means when they've adopted principles like liberty, uh, that doesn't get a crabbed or narrow construction. Uh, it is a broad principle that should be applied consistent with their intent, which was to adopt a broad principle. By, by, I, I depart from some views of original intent in the sense that those folks, uh, some people view it as meaning just the conditions at that time, just the particular problem. I think you need to, to look at the words they used and if the words adopt a broader principle, it applies more broadly. Well, I'll accept that uh, as an indication of uh, your view not to have a, quote, crabbed interpretation uh, on applying the broad principles. Let me refer you to a statement by Chief Justice uh, Rehnquist in dissent in the Casey case, which uh, surprises me, and I ask you whether you agree with this. He said, quote, a woman's interest in having an abortion is a form of liberty protected by the due process clause. Do you agree with that? Well, uh, that does get into an area where cases are coming up. The chief in that position was referencing, of course, the holding in Roe versus Wade, and that was what the issue was in, in Casey. Um, but I don't think I should opine on the correctness or incorrectness of particular views in areas that uh, are likely to come before the court. I'm going to move now to the confrontation between Congress and the court and what I consider to be denigrating comments about uh, the Congress. Uh, in the Morrison case, uh, in the face of an overwhelming factual record, the court, five to four decision, said that uh, uh, parts of the legislation to protect women against violence unconstitutional. Uh, because of the congressional, quote, method of reasoning. And then the dissent uh, picked up the conclusion that uh, the majority's view was, quote, dependent upon a uniquely judicial competence, close quote, with the other side of the coin being uh, congressional uh, incompetence. Uh, and then in uh, uh, the dissent in Tennessee versus Lane, uh, Justice Scalia uh, says that uh, the court engages in ill-advised uh, proceedings to make itself the, quote, taskmaster uh, to see if the Congress has, uh, has done its uh, homework. Uh, you commented a few minutes ago that you would be respectful uh, of Congress. Uh, uh, do we have your commitment that... Uh, uh, you won't uh, characterize your method of reasoning as superior to ours? I, I don't think it's appropriate. Now, in, in your particular case, maybe yours is, but as a generalization, uh, we've, we've gone around this with other nominees, and after they've gone to the court, they haven't been mindful as to what they have said here, but... Uh, I, I take umbrage at what uh, uh, the court has said, and so do my 
and so do my colleagues. Uh, uh, there isn't a method of reasoning which changes when you move across the grain uh, from the Senate uh, columns to the Supreme Court columns. And uh, we do our homework, evidenced by what uh, has gone on in this hearing. And we don't like uh, being treated as school children, uh, requiring, as uh, Justice Scalia says, uh, a taskmaster. Uh, will you do better on this subject, uh, Judge Roberts? Well, I don't think the court should be a uh, taskmaster of Congress. I think uh, uh, the Constitution is the court's taskmaster, and it's Congress's taskmaster as well. And we each have responsibilities under the Constitution. Um, and I appreciate very much the differences in uh, institutional competence between the judiciary and the Congress when it comes to basic questions of fact-finding, uh, development of a record, and also the authority to make the policy decisions about how to act on the basis of a particular record. It's not just a disagreement over a record, it's a question of whose job it is to make a determination based on the record. Now, the record on the record, in uh, uh, U.S. versus Morrison, uh, the legislation to protect women against violence, uh, the uh, record showed uh, that there were uh, reports on gender bias from the task force in 21 states and eight separate reports issued by Congress and its committees over a long course of time leading to the enactment and the characterization uh, by the dissenters that there was a a mountain uh, of evidence. Uh, what what more what more does the Congress have to do uh, to establish a record uh, that will be respected by the, the court? And this is where uh, the five-person majority threw it over, uh, not because of the record, but because of the method of reasoning. Isn't that record palpably sufficient to sustain the constitutionality of the act? Well. Mr. Chairman, I don't want to comment on the correctness or incorrectness of a particular decision. What I will say... Well, Judge Roberts, let me interrupt you there for a minute. Uh, uh, wh why not? The case is over. This isn't a case which is likely uh, to come before you again. These are the uh, specific facts uh, uh, based on the uh, rape of the woman alleged rape by the three VMI students. Uh, I... I, I Liked your answers yesterday. You were willing to answer more questions about cases uh, on the uh, differentiation that they are not likely to come before the court. This is not uh, likely to come before the court again. Is, isn't this record sufficient in Morrison to well, Mr. Chairman, the act? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I must respectfully disagree. I have been willing to comment on cases that I think are not likely to come before the court again. I think particular question you ask about the adequacy of findings to make a determination of the impact on interstate commerce uh, is likely to come before the court again. And expressing an opinion on whether the Morrison case was correct or, or incorrect uh, would be prejudging those cases that are likely to come before the court uh, uh, again. And that is the line. It's not just a line that I'm drawing. It's a line that, as I've read the transcripts, every nominee who's sitting on the court today drew. Some of them drew the line far more aggressively and wouldn't even comment on cases like Marbury versus, Morris, uh, Marbury versus Madison. 
Um, what I can tell you is that with respect to review of congressional findings, that my view of the appropriate role of a judge is a limited role and that you do not make the law. And that it seems to me that one of the <coughs> warning factors suggest to you as a judge that you may be beginning to transgress into the area of making the law is when you are in a position of reevaluating uh, legislative findings because that doesn't look like uh, judicial function. It's not an application of analysis under the Constitution. It's, a, it's just another look at findings. Now, again, I don't feel it's appropriate to comment on Morrison. I do feel it's appropriate to tell you that I appreciate the differences between Congress and the courts with respect to findings, both with respect to the issue of the capability and competence to undertake that enterprise, and also with respect to the issue of authority to make a decision based on the findings. Judge Roberts will have to agree to disagree about that. Uh, I don't think the facts of Morrison are likely to come before the court, but uh, uh, I ask the questions, uh, you answer them. Let me come now to uh, uh, the Americans for Disabilities Act. Uh, and you have uh, uh, five to four decisions going opposite ways. Uh, Ms. Garrett uh, had breast cancer. Uh, the court in 2001 said that uh, uh, the uh, title of the Disabilities Act was unconstitutional, five to four, uh, on employment discrimination. And then uh, three years later, uh, you have the case uh, coming up uh, of lane paraplegia crawling up the steps, accommodations five to four, uh, the act is upheld. Uh, the uh, record in the case it was very extensive, 13 congressional hearings, a task force that held hearings in every state attended by more than 30,000 people, including thousands who had experienced discrimination. And uh, in the Garrett case, the Supreme Court of the United States uh, used a doctrine which uh, had been uh, uh, in vogue only since 1997 in the Bernie case. Uh, you and I discussed this uh, uh, in my office. They came up with a standard of what is uh, congruent and proportionate. Congruence and proportionality. Uh, I was interested in your statement when we talked informally that you didn't find those in the 14th Amendment. I didn't either. Now, they plucked congruence and proportionality right out of thin air. Uh, uh, and uh, when Scalia dissented, uh, uh, he said that the congruence and proportionality test was a, quote, flabby test, which is a, quote, invitation to judicial arbitrariness by policy-driven decision-making. Now, you said yesterday that you did not think that there was judicial activism when the court overruled an act of Congress. Uh, isn't this congruence and proportionality test, which comes out of thin air, uh, a classic example of judicial activism where the view of congruence, uh, hard to find a definition for congruence, Proportionality, hard to find a definition for proportionality. I've searched and can't find any. Isn't that the very essence of what is in the eye of the beholder, where the court takes carte blanche to declare acts of Congress unconstitutional? Well, 
these questions arise, of course, under, as you know, Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, where the issue is Congress's power to uh, address violations of the 14th Amendment. And it's an extraordinary grant of, of power, and the court has always recognized it as such. And their decisions in recent years, it's not just, as you point out, the Garrett case on the one hand and the <coughs> Lane case on the others. There are, you have the Hibbs case recently, which upheld Congress's exercise of authority. The most recent cases, Lane uh, and Hibbs, uh, uphold Congress's exercise of authority to abrogate. But Judge Robert, they uphold it at the pleasure of the court. Well, Congress, uh, Congress can't figure figure that out. There's no way we can tell what's congruent and proportional in the eyes of the court. Well, and that was Justice Scalia's uh, position in dissent. He had originally. Do you agree with Scalia? Well, I, again, this the congruent and proportional test. Do you disagree with Justice Scalia? Uh, I don't think it's appropriate in an area, and there are cases coming up, as you know, Mr. Chairman. Uh, there's a case on the docket right now that considers the congruence and proportionality test. That's why I'm um, raising it with you. I'd like to see a sensible interpretation for the court in that case. Well, and if I am confirmed, and I do have to sit on that case, um, I would approach that with an open mind and consider the arguments. I can't give you a commitment here today about how I will approach an issue that is going to be on the docket within a matter of months. Judge Roberts, I'm not talking about an issue. I'm talking about the essence of jurisprudence. I'm talking about the essence of a man-woman-made test in the Supreme Court, which has no grounding in the Constitution, no grounding in the Federalist Papers, no grounding in the history of the country, comes out of thin air in 1997, and it's used in uh, Lane and Garrett uh, to uh, two five-to-four decisions on identical records, on an identical act, and uh, the country and the Congress are supposed to figure out what, what the court means. So I'm really talking about jurisprudence. Judge Roberts, let me move to one other subject in the two minutes that I have remaining. Uh, and that is uh, on the uh, ability which you uh, would have, if confirmed as Chief Justice, to try to bring a consensus to the court. We have five to four decisions as the hallmark of the courts, not unusual. You commented yesterday about what Chief Justice Warren did on Brown versus Board of Education, taking a very disparate court and pulling the court together. As you and I discussed in my office, there are an overwhelming number of cases where there are multiple concurrences. A writes a concurring opinion in which B joins, then B writes a concurring opinion in which A joins and C joins. Uh, in reading uh, the uh, trilogy of cases on detainees from June of uh, 2004 to figure out what we ought to do about Guantanamo, it was a patchwork of confusion. Uh, I was intrigued by uh, the comment which you made in our uh, in our meeting about uh, uh, a dialogue uh, among equals. Uh, and you characterize that as a dialogue among equals when you appear before the court and uh, uh, they're on a little different uh, level over there. Uh, uh, I, I'm way behind you on Supreme Court arguments. It's 39 to 3, but uh, I would have been an equal of theirs in any event. Perhaps you are, but I am intrigued by your concept 
and I asked you how you'd be able to be the chief with uh, Justice Scalia, who was 18 years older than you, and even Justice uh, Thomas, who's uh, uh, seven years older than you. Uh, tell us what you think you can do on this uh, dialogue among equals to try to bring some consensus to the court, to try to avoid these proliferation of opinions and uh, avoid all these five to four decisions. Time's up. Well, I'd like to hear the answer, because that's the question I was going to ask, too. So. Well, now we're on Senator Leahy's time. No, 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 time. we're not on my time. <laughs> we're not on my time. We're still on yours, Mr. Chairman, but I'd like to, I'd like to hear uh, the same It's permissible to have the answer on the red light, just right. not the question. Um, well, I don't want to be presumptuous um, uh, about if I am confirmed um, what I would do. I do think, though, it's a responsibility of all of the justices, not just the Chief Justice, to try to work toward an opinion of the court. Uh, the Supreme Court speaks only as a court. Individually, the justices have no authority. Um, and I do think it should be a priority uh, to have an opinion of the court. Uh, you don't obviously compromise strongly held views, but you do have to be open to the considered views of your colleagues, particularly when it gets to a concurring opinion. I do think you do need to ask yourself, what benefit is this serving? Uh, why is it necessary for me to state this separate reason? Can I go take another look at what the four of them think or the three of them think to see if I can subscribe to that or get them to modify it in a way that would allow me to subscribe to that because an important function of the Supreme Court is to provide guidance. As a lower court judge, uh, I appreciate clear guidance from the Supreme Court. I know, I think the last thing the uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist said in court uh, on the last day of the term, he was reading the disposition in a case and said, you know, A re re reaches this conclusion, he's joined by B, and then C has a separate concurrence joined by D and E, and he ended up by saying, I didn't know we had that many judges on the court. Um, and that undermines the importance of providing guidance. I do think the Chief Justice has a particular obligation to try to achieve uh, consensus consistent with everyone's individual oath to uh, uphold the Constitution, and that would certainly be a priority for me if I were confirmed. Thank you very much, uh, Senator you, Roberts. Chairman. Senator Leahy. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for asking that question. I, it was one I wanted to ask, too. Last night, we welcomed you to night court. Uh, welcome to daytime court. Thank you, Senator. Uh, it will probably become night court before we get done. We, uh, we talked just briefly about the First Amendment yesterday, and it's written primarily in terms of speech, but in a free and democratic uh, nation, uh, uh, access to information, I think, is, is extraordinarily important, too. Our framers the maximum maximum knowledge is power. Actually, that was the maximum the uh, administration used as the model for what was somewhat Orwellian uh, total information awareness program until a Republican Congress, uh, and I supported this, shut it down, as asking too much knowledge about individual Americans. I also spoke about we the people. If we, the people, know what our government's doing, why it's doing it, we can hold the government accountable and should. So I, I worry about administration. I'm not going into a specific case, but I'm worried about administration that spreads misinformation, that is uh, declaring more things secret 
and spending billions of dollars doing that, far more than any administration in history, probably all administrations put together. It punishes the uh, uh, whistleblowers that bars the press and cameras from so many different events. So I, and I believe very strongly that if the people want to know what's going on, the courts are, if at all possible, supposed to take their sides in making sure they know what's going on. Because a government should not be able to hide things unnecessarily the people. No matter who's in power, the people should know what's going on. So I, I, I'd like to know how you would approach such a case. Let me give you a few examples. The last couple of years, the administration fought to prevent the media from covering coffins returning from Iraq. It fought to keep disturbing images of U.S. run prisons in Iraq from the media. And uh, just last weekend, actually after it lost the initial bout in court, abandoned its zero access policy regarding scenes of, access, uh, of devastation in New Orleans. As you know, most of America found out what was going on in New Orleans really from the press, not from our government, at least the first few days. There's been a number of uh, reasons, excuses, which seem to change day by day for why these things are being blocked. I'm not going to ask you to evaluate them. But my question is this. If the government seeks to exclude, broadly excuse, media from access to images or events of public interest or concern, does the First Amendment require the government to justify that denial of access? And if so, what kind of standards, not any particular case, but what kind of standards does the court have to apply? Senator, I haven't dealt with a lot of First Amendment access cases. Um, I know I studied one about media access to prisons, for example, the issue about uh, whether the media had a right of access to prisons, they wanted to report on it. Um, and so I'm not terribly familiar with the, the precise levels of scrutiny that apply. Uh, there is uh, obviously a balancing of sorts between particular interests when you're dealing with governmental operations, and there's some perfectly valid reasons for excluding uh, media. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, it's simply uh, disagreement about whether it's an appropriate issue for the public to see would not strike me as a very compelling governmental interest. And I think the courts regularly balance these sorts of things uh, when they get an issue about uh, uh, a challenge for the media saying their First Amendment rights are being violated because of a particular exclusion. And under Again, I'm not terribly familiar with the precise legal standards uh, uh, or how they've developed since the, the, the prison access case that I'm familiar with. But it does require a consideration and weighing, and, and the values of the uh, First Amendment obviously are something that have to be given careful weight uh, by the court for the very reasons that you've discussed, because the First Amendment is uh, it serves a purpose. It's not there just because the, the, the framers thought this was in general a good idea. It serves a purpose with respect to the government. It provides access to information and allows people in a free society to make a judgment about what their government is up to. Let me, uh, like the chairman, I was a prosecutor, and, and if I move a little bit out of the prison situation, which raised all other kinds of, of questions and, and uh, per, uh, 
abilities to limit access. Let's just go to something that the public might easily have access to if they could just walk in there. Uh, suppose the government, I'll use something like Katrina, uh, suppose they felt that the rescue operations of the government, whether it's state, local, or federal, was, go was being handled in an inept way, or evacuees were being mistreated, does that give them a right to buy the media who may want to expose that? Well, I think it's a general... How would you, how would you analyze the claim uh, without saying a particular case? How would you analyze the The, the media comes and says, look, the, uh, the government screwed up. Uh, we're trying to get in there and take pictures to show how they screwed up. And they say you can't come in. How would you analyze a claim like that? Well, uh, you know, I do start with a general principle in this area, and I, I, I think it was Justice Brandeis who talked about, you know, sunlight being the best disinfectant. And um, I think that's a lot of what the framers had in mind uh, in guaranteeing uh, freedom of speech and the other rights that go along with it. They appreciated the benefits that would come from public awareness. That's an important principle. I also, uh, and again, uh, this is not an area that I feel completely up to speed on the precedents, and I obviously, if I were in a position as a judge and had to decide a particular case, uh, would uh, study them and become aware. But my recollection is that there is uh, great difficulty whenever you try to distinguish between public rights and media rights, and that if it's a situation in which the public is being given access, you can't discriminate against the media and say, uh, uh, as a general matter, that the media don't have access. Because their, ac their access rights, of course, uh, correspond with those of the, uh, the public. And as you said, they're in a position, uh, just if there are a handful of people who might be able to have access, uh, the media is in a position to make that uh, information or knowledge or whatever available on a broader basis. Um, and I, I raise this because, and I'm not trying to pin you on a particular case, I, I think we're going to see more and more of this. We're in a digital age, a lot of information readily available. At the same time, the, the bad part about that is our government can acquire more and more and more information on us, just as your credit card company or anybody else does on you. And some of us want to be in a position to be able to go in and find out what is being collected on us. Uh, to what extent are we giving up our privacy? And usually, far more than the Congress or anybody else, it's been the media that's exposed when this has been overdone, when uh, mistakes or violations are done. And I would hope that you would be committed, uh, you would be committed to protecting just as much as possible uh, access rather than, rather than the other way around. Let me, um, let me go to an issue we discussed yesterday, or others did, on the issue of capital punishment. We've held in this committee a number of hearings that show some real flaws in the, in the administration of capital punishment. You know, sleeping lawyers, drunk lawyers, lawyers didn't bother even uh, to investigate or didn't have the funds to do it. More than 100 uh, death row inmates have been exonerated. Some, though, who have spent years on death row in the most horrible conditions for a crime they never committed. Uh, I think Senator Durbin mentioned uh, a situation out in Illinois where Republican governor had to, and did, courageously, I felt, uh, uh, 
extend clemency to a whole lot of people who had been on death row, some say, and I think you've even said this, when they're exonerated, it shows the system works. Well, let me tell you about the system in that case. One of the people is Anthony Porter. Spent 16 years on death row. He was within two days of being executed. The system didn't work on behalf of the government doing it. A bunch of kids from Northwestern University who had taken as elective course a course on journalism, and the teacher said, why don't you look into a couple of these? And these kids went out and did it. The kids dug up the information that was there, available to the police, available to the prosecutor, available to the defense. Nobody dug up. They found it. And within two days of his uh, execution, the state's attorney dropped the case. They got somebody else to confess. Um, you said two years ago, and I remember being at that hearing, you said that on the startling number of innocent men sentenced to death or later exonerated, you responded somehow showed the system worked in exonerating them. I worry about that statement. I, I really do. It, it's bothered me. You know, I voted for you for, for the uh, circuit court, and there was a split vote in our party. But that one really bothered me, that statement. I, I, I found it almost mechanical, and, I, and I'll tell you why. When we have people say innocent people have been freed after years on death row shows the system is working, it doesn't. I think Senator Dale O'Connor said um, a few years ago, if statistics are any indication, the system may well be allowing some innocent defendants to be executed. If that's the case, the system is not working. In Harara, we discussed that, the, the court grappled with, did not, didn't ultimately decide, does the Constitution permit the execution of a person? who is um, uh, innocent. And as principal deputy solicitor general, you co-authored the amicus brief for the U.S. in, uh, in the Rara case. You said that a claim of actual innocence does not state a ground for federal habeas. Actually, you said, quote, does the Constitution require the prisoner have the right to seek judicial review of a claim of newly discovered evidence instead of being required to seek relief in the clemency process? In our view, the Constitution does not guarantee the prisoner such a right. So let me ask you this, without going to the facts of our is it your current personal view that death row inmate who can prove his innocence has no constitutional right to do so before a court, before he's executed? Uh, well, Senator, and this is the basis of the disagreement in Herrera. Herrera is not a case about actual innocence. Well, it's a question of whether you're entitled to bring a new claim. But listen to my listen to my question. Does a death row inmate who can prove his innocence, do they have no constitutional right to do so in a court of law before they're executed? Well, prove his, his innocence. The issue arises before you get to the question of proof. And the question is, do you allow someone who has raised several claims over the years to suddenly say at the last minute, somebody who just died was the person who uh, committed the murder? And does that mean you start the trial all over again simply on the basis of that last minute claim? Or do you require more of a showing at that stage? That's what Herrera was about. Now, 
I don't think, of course, that anybody who is innocent should be uh, uh, suffer uh, for as a result of a false conviction. If they've been falsely convicted and they're innocent, they shouldn't be well, does uh, the, in, does in the prison, let alone executed. But does the, the Constitution issue, permit the execution of innocent person? I would think not, but the question is never do you allow the execution of an innocent person. The question is do you allow particular claimants to raise different claims fourth or fifth or sixth time uh, to say at the last minute uh, somebody who just died was actually the person who committed the murder, let's have a new trial, uh, or do you uh, uh, take into account the proceedings that have already uh, gone on? I'm looking on? for broad principles here. You said, let me read it again. Does the Constitution require that a prisoner have the right to seek judicial review of a claim of newly discovered evidence instead of being required to seek relief in the clemency process? In our view, the Constitution does not guarantee the prisoner such a right. Is that your view today? Well, that's what the court held in Herrera. I know. Is that your view today? Well, I'm not in a position to comment on the correctness or incorrectness of particular court decisions. That's the court's precedent in Herrera. It agreed with the administration position, which was not that innocent people should be subject to imprisonment or execution. That's the position you took. The Supreme Court's going to revisit this issue in House versus Bell. Uh, because you stated a position on that, does that require you to recuse yourself in, in a House versus Bell? No, because the position was stated in my a brief filed on behalf of the administration. Uh, and we've talked yesterday about the established principle that lawyers do not subscribe as a personal matter to the views they present on behalf of clients. Well, in this case, clients in the United States, I mean, you're stating the position as sort of the... Um, uh, what do they call it, the 10th um, Justice? Well, I was the Deputy Solicitor General on the brief. I didn't argue the case. The Solicitor General uh, was the counsel of record in the case. Um, but the position presented in the brief as an advocate is not necessarily the position of every lawyer on the brief. Well, um, I think you were more than just a lawyer in the brief. You were one of the most sought-after jobs picked because of your position. Um, I was very impressed when I talked with you about your your use of Latin, for example, uh, you know what, and French. And um, I'm always impressed with that facility. There is a Latin phrase, and this is not a gotcha. I'll I'll, I'll translate it. Uh, per alien pace per se. Uh, he who acts for another acts for himself, and um, that's not the case in Herrera? He who acts for another acts for himself. Well, it's the client acting through the lawyer, and it's the client who's acting for themselves. You are the, you are the client in this case when you're, the Solicitor General is the client in, a, in effect. Uh, no, uh, Senator, I disagree with that. Okay. The Solicitor General represents the interests of the United States, and those positions uh, represent uh, that client's position. And in, this, in the Herrera case, again, it was the Solicitor General who was responsible for the position that was, that was advanced. I'm not suggesting in any way that I disagree with it or agree with it. I'm just saying that it is a basic principle in our system that lawyers represent clients, and you do not ascribe the position of the client to the lawyer. It's a position that goes back to John Adams and the revolution. Let me ask you, let me ask you this, then. 
Let me ask you something that can be ascribed to justice of the Supreme Court. It's something that uh, both the chairman and I have talked a lot about. Uh, and that goes into some of the mechanics. And if you let me take a moment, you understand these, but for the audience, the so-called uh, rule of four. It, uh, it takes only four justices to grant cert, but it takes five to uh, grant a stay of execution. Usually the courtesy is that if you get four, a fifth one will sign on. That um, has not always been followed of late. Of course, we're dealing with we're dealing with with the uh, life life or death issue. Senator Specter called it uh, bizarre and unacceptable, and considered legislation to change it. How do you feel if you were a chief? You have four. Four of the justices have now voted for a stay of execution. Do you feel as chief you should do the courtesy of the rule of five and kick in the fifth one? It's an issue that I'm familiar with. I do know it arose. And I thought the common practice, uh, the current practice, was that if there are four votes to grant cert, that the court would grant the stay, even though that does require the fifth vote, so that you don't have a situation. It's usually a yeah, but that's because one more says, okay, we got four, right. uh, we'll put somebody else's name on it, but that hasn't been followed uh, all the time recently. It, it usually was, hmm. and that's why both Senator Specter and I have raised concern. Do you feel the earlier practice of once you have four, I, I think the that, fifth? I think that practice makes a lot of sense. I don't want to commit. Uh, to pursue a particular practice in an area that we'll, I'll obviously have to look at in the future. But it obviously makes great sense that if you have four to grant, and that's the rule, that you will consider an issue if there are four to grant. You don't want to moot the case by not staying uh, uh, the sentence. Right. And I, I appreciate that because I know we um, find a lot of cases where they're perfectly willing to grant cert on monetary damages, but uh, here it's kind of get it right, uh, it doesn't make much difference for an appeal after after the execution. You wrote a memo regarding, back in 83, as a White House lawyer, you wrote a memo regarding proposals by then Chief Justice Warren Berger to reduce the Supreme Court's caseload. In that memo, you volunteered the following, if the justices truly think they're overworked, the cure lies close at hand. For example, giving coherence to Fourth Amendment jurisprudence by adopting the good faith standard and advocating the, rule, the role of fourth or fifth guesser in death penalty cases would eliminate about a half dozen argued cases from the court's docket each term. Are you saying that judges are just too busy to pay attention to death cases? No, uh, no, Senator. But what are I'm, you saying? How do you feel today? That was 83. How do you feel now, 20? 22 years later. Well, in 83, of course, they were hearing about 150 cases a year. Uh, they hear about half that now. Um, again, I don't want to prejudge questions uh, or even be presumptuous to look down the road, but it seems to me that there's the capability there to hear more cases today, um, not fewer. Um, and I'm sure there are reasons for the reduction in the caseload that I'm not familiar with that I might become more familiar with, but. 
they handled twice as many cases 20 years ago than they do today, and I think the capability to address more issues is, is there in the court. My time is up, but I think you'll find both the chairman and ranking member of, the, uh, of this committee believe they, they could handle more. Thank you, Judge. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Thank Senator, Senator Leahy. Senator Hatch? Well, <coughs> I think you've really acquitted yourself as well as anybody I've seen in the 10 uh, nomination for the nominations for the Supreme Court that I've uh, been part of. Uh, and I just have to, I'm going to correct the record a little bit. It isn't the Ginsburg rule, although that's been referred to by almost all of us, including me. It's the Thurgood Marshall rule, the Rehnquist rule, the Kennedy, Souter, Thomas, Ginsburg, Breyer, just to name a few rule. Because in every case, as I stated in my original remarks, the individual nominee has to draw a line as to what they can discuss and what they can't. And you've drawn, I think, a fair line here throughout these proceedings, and I commend you for it. And, uh, and uh, there's just no excuse for being pushed to try and answer questions about cases that are likely to come before the court or presently are before the court. And I think, I think the American people are starting to really fully realize that now as a result of these hearings. Now, Judge Roberts, as you know, the war on terror is a unique challenge in American history. As a consequence, many novel issues regarding uh, presidential authority to prosecute the war on terror will, will doubtless come before the Supreme Court. I think we all recognize the need to be careful in our questioning so you are not placed in the position of pre-committing yourself to any particular viewpoints on executive power that would compromise your ability to render a fair judgment as cases come before the court. But let me ask you a general question on terrorism. It is a question that many in Congress and the administration and in the public have had to struggle with, particularly in the aftermath of the events of September 11, 2001. The question is this, what is the best way for our society to protect ourselves against terrorists not affiliated with a nation state, where no uniforms and, and really uh, secrete themselves in ways that had never been done before? On, on the one hand, there are very specific international rules embodied in the Geneva Conventions that specify how enemies captured during traditional warfare are to be treated. On the other hand, we have the traditional uh, criminal law protections contained in Title 18 of the United States Code that define the rights uh, accorded to criminals such as the famous Miranda warnings, uh, warning, I should say, and the right uh, to obtain counsel. What everyone is struggling with is how do we apply these two traditional methods against non-traditional enemies uh, who clearly are non-traditional. Let us make no mistake, uh, their goal is to destroy our society and way of life. And they will use weapons of mass destruction if they can. I don't think anybody doubts that. Let me just ask you this general question. Will you give us assurance that you will keep an open mind as the administration and Congress adopt and implement new policies and legal procedures that govern the apprehension, interrogation, and detention of suspected terrorists? Yes, Senator, I will. Um, I certainly am not qualified to comment on the best approaches uh, in the war on terror or the most effective approaches. Um, that is the responsibility, obviously, of the other branches. The responsibility of the judicial branch is to decide particular cases that are presented to them in this area according to the rule of law. Um, and that is what uh, I have tried to do, and that is what I will continue to do either on the Court of Appeals or another court. Well, thank you. Now, also yesterday, the Democrat staff of the committee released a press release stating that you failed uh, to distance yourself 
from what it called your earlier cramped positions on Title IX and women's rights. And after listening to you yesterday, I, I did not find your earlier positions cramped at all. In fact, as you explained here to the committee, many of the documents that questioners relied upon reflected the positions of the Reagan administration for which you worked. Now, what assurance can you give the committee that you will fairly interpret the civil rights laws, including critical statutes such as Title IX, uh, fully and fairly, consistent with the purposes Congress intended in passing these laws? Well, I can give the commitment that I appreciate that my role as a judge is different than my role as a staff lawyer for an, admi an administration. Um, as a judge, uh, I have no agenda. Uh, I have a guide in the Constitution and the laws uh, and the precedents of the court, and those are what I would apply with an open mind after fully and fairly considering the arguments and assessing the considered views of my colleagues on the bench. That's the way I would approach cases in that area as in any other area. The approach of someone who's obviously a, a staff lawyer in administration is very different. The approach of someone who's an advocate for a client before the court is obviously very different. Those are positions that I have held in the past. I am now a judge and I have had the experience and I think my record will establish that that is how I approach cases across the spectrum of issues that are raised before the courts. And reasonable people can differ on some of these issues. Oh, certainly. Now, in the Grove City case, you won that case, didn't you? The administration's position prevailed before That's the right. court. Yes. In other words, the position that you had advocated prevailed. Then, we didn't like it up here on Capitol Hill. So we passed the, uh, the Civil Rights uh, Restoration Act. And we changed it, right? Yes. Which, of course, is always the prerogative of Congress when you're dealing with a question of statutory interpretation. And that's part of a regular uh, interchange between the court and the Congress. Sometimes if the court gets something wrong, Congress can fix it. Even if the court gets it right, but Congress thinks the, uh, the approach ought to be changed, Congress is free to legislate uh, to, for a different result. So I find it strange to criticize you because you won a case in the Supreme Court and have not advocated uh, against uh, women's rights in any way, shape, or form ever in your uh, career, as far as I can understand. Is that correct? That's correct, Senator. And, in fact, you are a strong supporter of women's rights and gender equality. Yes, Senator. Okay. Now, let me just ask you a question that relates to some of the answers you gave yesterday regarding the voting rights. Even as the hearing was unfolded, again, Democratic staffers uh, of the committee issued a press release that said that you had missed an opportunity to distance yourself from what the release called your earlier narrow positions on the reach of the Voting Rights Act. Now, that is not what I heard you say, nor do I believe that is what the public heard. The Democratic press release said that you had resorted to vague generalities about the importance of voting. Now, as I heard you, I heard you explain the vigorous debate that took place regarding reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act in the 1980s. And by the way, I was part of that debate. I felt very deeply that the, that the effects test should apply to Section 5 to those states that had a history of discrimination. But I also felt very deeply at the time that the intent test should apply to all the other states in Section 2, which was the position I think the administration took that you had to do some research on and, and uh, uh, within the administration. Now, I lost in committee. Now, I was arguing that all of the states that did not have a history of, of, uh, of discrimination should not have be burdened by the effects test, which basically says if the effects of what happens looks like discrimination, that 
therefore is, even if there was never an intent to commit discrimination. Now, I lost, but I feel that the Voting Rights Act is the most important civil rights bill in history, and I felt it then. And I voted for the amended bill with the effects test language in Section 2, and have been a strong supporter ever since. Would that be fair to describe your feelings about that? Well, yes, Senator. The, the debate, as you remember, was over whether or not the Section 2 should be extended without change, uh, as interpreted by the Supreme Court in Mobile against uh, Bolden, or whether it should be changed uh, to incorporate the effects test and later the totality of the circumstances test. The administration position at the time was to extend the Voting Rights Act for the longest period in history without change, um, and that was the position that I was working on at the time. Uh, uh, and Congress eventually decided with uh, Senator Dole and some other senators uh, developed a compromise position on Section 2, and that was enacted with the support of the administration. And the one thing that was clear to me throughout those extended debates uh, uh, was that the people on both sides of the issue uh, in good faith supported uh, extension of the Voting Rights Act and recognized the importance of the Voting Rights Act in securing civil liberties for all Americans. It wasn't a dispute about the goal. It wasn't a dispute about the objective. It wasn't a dispute about the importance. It was a dispute about whether to extend the act without change or whether to make changes in the act. And that was what the debate was about. Well, and the difference was is that uh, the administration vehemently wanted to pass the Voting Rights Act as it existed that was somewhat difficult to pass originally uh, when, it, when, when it was originally passed. And that was, a, that was a decent, honorable position. But when it was changed uh, through our democratic process up here on Capitol Hill, uh, I felt for the worse at the time, but I feel like I was wrong at the time, uh, then we, we voted for it. In fact, it was my friend, uh, Senator Kennedy, who uh, insisted that I come down to the White House as part of the uh, bill signing team, because he knew how deeply I felt about this. But there was a legitimate reason to take the administration's position, and the administration, uh, once the compromise was reached with uh, Senators Dole and Kennedy, the administration accepted that as well, and so did you. That, that was the point I just kind of wanted to make, because I think it's important to realize that uh, that we can sometimes, uh, you know, we can sometimes uh, get to a point where we misconstrue the intentions of decent, honorable people. And I count myself one of those. And even though uh, I lost in committee on this bill, because to me it is the most important civil rights bill in history, albeit others are very important as well. Now, I just uh, want to tell you that, like I say, I've been here for 29 years and I've been through 10 of these. I think 10, if I recall correctly. And in all of that time, we've seen some really sterling, brilliant, wonderful people before this committee, but I've never seen anybody who has done a better job of explaining himself than you have. If people can't vote for you, then I doubt that they can vote for any Republican nominee. You have made a very, very uh, strong presentation here. And I hope the American people realize that, and I hope uh, my colleagues on both sides of the aisle realize that. And uh, I look forward to seeing you as Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court and do everything in my power to see that you, you are confirmed. 
With that, I have eight and a half minutes left. I reserve the balance of my time. Thank you very much, Senator Hatch. Senator Kennedy? Um, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Good morning. Good morning, Senator. I'd like to, uh, if we could, come back in the time that I have now and uh, perhaps in a follow-up round to the uh, issue on, on civil rights because, as been mentioned here by, by others, it is the uh, overarching issue, I think, uh, for our country and our society. I think our founders didn't get it right at the time of the drafting of the Constitution. We've had a civil war. This country went through an extraordinary period of time uh, led by Dr. King in the uh, 1950s and then we had that extraordinary moment of Dr. King uh, here at the Lincoln Memorial which I think touched the conscience of the nation, people from all over the country. We were stuck for months on the 1964 Act as you probably remember and then with the action that was taken uh, by uh, Everett Dirks and it opened up the possibilities for reaching a compromise on the public accommodations provisions. We spent eight hours, a number of us in the Judiciary Committee with Nick Katzenbach over in the Capitol office and had an agreement at that time to be no amendments on the public accommodations. We could amend other uh, provisions and the legislation went forward and was monumental in its importance and consequence. The then we came back and realized after that that the most important legislation that we could probably address, we still had a ways to go on, on housing and employment, but although employment was included in the 64 Act, but not to a great extent, was in the Voting Rights Act. And we had extensive hearings. And during the, uh, the course of those hearings, uh, by this uh, committee, other committees as well, we listened to the Attorney General Katzenbach, who had been working with Senator Dirksen, really the architect, leadership of President Johnson certainly, but the architect of the 64 Act. And he testified before this committee about the Section 2 provisions. And in his uh, testimony on the Section 2 provisions, uh, he said Section 2 applies to any voting practice or procedure if its purpose or effect was to deny or bridge the right to vote on account of race or color. So for many of us, including the civil rights community, believed that the effects test was operative at that time. That bill passed the House by 333 to 85, 77 to 19. The next thing that happened is we had the series of tests, as you recall, and the overarching test case was the Zimmer case, but we have a number of other cases, Zimmer versus McKithen, and it was the Fifth Circuit in bank, Fifth Circuit that dealt with the whole range, for the most part, range of uh, states where many of these challenges had existed, although uh, I certainly recognize we have a long ways to go in my own state of Massachusetts. But uh, this was this court in bank, effectively in the Zimmer case. It was the lead case on the effects test. And that was followed by a series of cases, U.S. versus Post, Kendrick versus Walder, for a long period of time. You're, you're aware of this history? 
I, I'm remembering it from when we addressed this debate okay. 23 years ago. Yes. But it sounds familiar. Um, then we went up to 1980 and we had the Mobile case, which effectively put the intent test in. And after the Mobile case, as you well remember, the Justice Department dropped a whole series of cases that had been prepared under the effects test because they did not believe that they could make the case on the intent test. Whole series. And this sent a very powerful message to individuals across the, uh, the South, other parts of the country, that the additional kind of a burden to demonstrate intention was going to be so substantial it was going to make uh, in terms of resources and to try and determine the intent of individuals that lived many years ago to virtually be prohibitive. That happened. The Justice Department dropped scores, scores of cases. And it was one of the important reasons that the civil rights community and many of us believed that it was so important at the time of the extension of the voting rights case in 1982 that we put the effects test in. You believed, as I remember, and as we've gone over, uh, that it should have been a restatement of the existing law, as you correctly stated yesterday, which was the intent test. Am, am I that correct was so the, far? That was the administration administration's position. position. I remember French Smith testifying before this committee to that effect, I remember at that particular time. Every civil rights group in 1982 uh, included the effects test. This is the NAACP, Legal Defense, National Urban League, Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights under Law, Conference on Civil Rights, Mexican American Legal, National Council of Raza League of United Latin American Voters, League of Women Voters, the list goes on, Congressional Black Caucus. And the House went ahead and passed the legislation with the effects test by 389 to 24. 389 to 24. And in that legislation, the legislation included language which reflected the concern of the administration about whether the intent test was going to lead to either proportional representation or to to quotas. That language was included in the House legislation that passed. And it included the fact that members of a minority group have not been elected in numbers equal to the group's proportion of the population should not, and in and of itself, constitution violation of this section. This addressed, for all intents and purposes, the concerns that the administration, I thought, and most of us, the civil rights community thought that they had with regard to the issue of proportional representation. You roughly remember that or aware remember, without, without... I certainly remember the provision in the, in the House bill so, at the time. So we also now included that language in the Senate bill. Now the House bill passed. The Senate bill had 61 co-sponsors prior to the time that we adopted the Dole Amendment. That legislation was on its way. That legislation was good as done, quite frankly. 
the Dole Amendment was effectively a restatement of what was in the House bill, and it had been included. But the administration after that said, well, if they're going to include that as the Dole Amendment, uh, we will let up in our opposition and we'll eventually uh, support it. Now, during the time after the passage of the House bill and prior to the passage of the Senate bill, you, even though the House had passed it, you were still strongly maintained the administration's position, did you not? Well, I was still working for the administration, right. Senator. Okay. President Reagan's position was to extend the act without change. As you mentioned, that was the Attorney General's position. I was a special assistant to the Attorney General, um, and I was doing my best to uh, implement their views and support their views. In your uh, memoranda that was uh, to the Attorney General, uh, Brad Reynolds now, the administration after the House bill, I think the history will show it, thought that the administration uh, should alter its position. It's, your memoranda said Brad Reynolds has expressed some reservation about circulating any written statement on the question to the Hill. My own view is that something must be done. I d maybe that's a staffer, but it's separating yourself from Brad Reynolds, uh, who was the uh, leader on that, this issue at the time. Then you... Oh, well, with respect, Senator, right. the, my understanding, and I uh, looked at that memorandum okay. recently, is that the issue was whether or not to circulate something explaining the administration okay. position. And I didn't think it, Mr. Reynolds's view was you shouldn't do that because he didn't support the position. It was a question whether or not to circulate something at that time. And my view was whether or not I thought if the administration was advocating its position, it ought to get the position out. Well, I think that's, that's good. You're a, a good advocate and a strong believer in this. The reason in this memoranda that you circle, and I have it right uh, here, and I make what parts of it uh, available to the committee, I mean to the, the record, in this, in the latter, last paragraph, you said, on the issue of the effects standard nationwide on the strength of the record will be constitutionally suspect, but also contrary to the most fundamental tenets of the legislative process which the laws of this country are based. Constitutionally suspect, effects test. The reason that I bring this up is to find out what you believed in then and what you believe today. Because you having raised in your memoranda the, that this is provision, the effects test is constitutionally suspect, is that still your position? Because if it is your position on an issue as important as the Voting Rights Act that resulted in the elections of hundreds and thousands of local leaders of color in all parts of the country, representatives in the House of Representatives, uh, and moved the whole democratic process uh, forward, then I think the American people are entitled to know. So specifically, specifically, uh, do you believe that the effects test in the Voting Rights Act, which is currently the law, is constitutional? 
Well, Senator, I don't know what the analysis, you read a clause of a sentence, and I would have to look at the whole memorandum and uh, to see exactly what the suggestion or the issue was in that case. Senator Kennedy, would you make the memo sure. available to him, please? Yes. What, what, uh, what, what I'm interested in, in doing is asking now whether you believe that the effects test is constitutionally suspect. I'm, uh, I'm interested I've, in today, quite frankly, yeah. Uh, more than what we had uh, written before, uh, whether you believe that it is sus uh, suspect today or whether you find that it is settled law. Just, uh, it's fine. If you want to obviously refer to it, but I'm interested in what's your view today, whether you... To what I'm referring to in this paragraph uh, is the court's determination, and if I'm looking at this correctly, under Section 5, its determination, the, the <coughs> language you read uh, notes the Supreme Court's conclusion under Section 5, which is the preclearance provision that applies to uh, jurisdictions with a history of discrimination. And what the court had said in that case was that. Uh, requirement of preclearance uh, was acceptable given the record that the Congress had established in the Voting Rights Act of 1965 of the practices in those jurisdictions. And the concern was that if you extend the effects test nationwide, the record which had been established only with respect to particular jurisdictions in the South wouldn't uh, apply nationwide, and that would be the basis for a constitutional challenge. Uh, the application of the test under Section 2, which is, as you know, uh, it, we use the shorthand uh, effects test. It's actually the totality of the circumstances test, and it lays forth a number of considerations, and I think there's some argument about how it closely attracts effects test under Section 5, or if it's, a, if it's a different totality of the circumstances approach, I'm not aware of any case that has questioned the uh, constitutionality of the application of the totality of the circumstances case under Section 2. And if an issue on that were to be presented to me um, on the Supreme Court, which it may be given the uh, pending extension uh, of the Voting Rights Act, I would, of course, confront that issue as a judge and not as a staff attorney uh, for an administration with a position. And as a judge, I would come to the issue with an open mind and I would fully and fairly consider any arguments that might be presented. I don't know if an argument's going to be presented uh, about uh, the application of the totality of the circumstances test nationwide. Uh, as again, I'm not aware of any challenges that have been presented to it uh, since it was enacted. I don't know if any will be. It's when the voting, if or when the Voting Rights Act is extended again. But if it is, I would confront that as a judge and not uh, uh, as a staff attorney for an administration with a particular position on that issue. Well, Judge, there hasn't been, at least that I know, uh, in the legal circles, uh, suspicion about the unconstitutionality of the effects test as it applies to Section 5. That has, that's, that's, uh, as grounded as it can be. I'm asking the specific issue that was the really issue attention with the extension and the 
really the most important part historically about the Voting Rights Act, whether you think that that provision is constitutionally suspect today. The, this is the backbone of uh, effective voting in our country and our society, and I think the American people are entitled to know whether you believe or suspect that that particular provision, which has passed just overwhelmingly by the House and the Senate, signed by President Reagan, and has resulted in this extraordinary march to progress, is constitutionally sound. That's what I mean. I have no basis. I'm not aware of any constitutional challenge that has been brought to Section 2 since it was enacted. I've not, and, and, you know, I have no basis for viewing it as constitutionally suspect, and I don't. Um, if an issue were to arise uh, uh, before, before the Supreme Court or before the Court of Appeals, if I head back there, uh, I would consider that issue uh, uh, with an open mind in light of the arguments. I've got no basis for viewing it as constitutionally suspect uh, today, um, and I'm not aware that it's been challenged in that respect uh, since it was enacted. It may have been, but as I said, I'm, I'm not aware of it. Well, I, I gather you, you, you've had a an extensive answer that from that answer I did hear that it is not constitutionally suspect as far as your view today. Yes. Could I move on to the issue of affirmative action? Um, in the Greider uh, v. Bollinger case, the Supreme Court decided, very close 5-4 decision, Sandra Day O'Connor, the deciding uh, individual Good justice. The Supreme Court upheld the university practices that considered race as one factor in its admission decisions. No one is talking today about quotas. We're talking about affirmative action as defined in this uh, Greta decision. The court found that there was a constitutional affirmative action program aimed at achieving a racially diverse student body. In this uh, decision, the court express, expressly gave great weight to the representation by military leaders, military leaders, that said highly qualified racially diverse officer corps is essential to the military's ability to fulfill its principal mission and to provide national security. What weight if, would you give to that kind of a comment or statement or testimony by the military in considering any issue dealing with affirmative action? Well, the weight it was given was to help satisfy the test, because the court, as you know, in Grutter uh, applied strict scrutiny because it was dealing with considerations on the basis of race. And that required a showing of a compelling governmental interest to support that legislative action. And the testimony of the military officers, as the court explained, helps substantiate the compelling nature of the interest in having a diverse uh, student body. Um, and that was the, the, the weight that the court gave it. Um, uh, there was, of course, the other case. There were two Michigan cases, the law school case and the university case, the Gratz uh, case, where the court did say that it looked too much like a quota in that case because it was given determinative consideration as opposed to being one of a variety of factors that is, is considered. Um, and the two cases together kind of show where the court is coming out, at least in the area of higher education. Uh, the court permits consideration of race or ethnic background 
uh, so long as it's not sort of a make or break uh, test. Well, do you agree then with uh, Justice O'Connor writing for the majority that gave great weight to the real-world impact of affirmative policies in universities? And the reason I've got 35 seconds left, that uh, you might say, well, this may eventually come on up before the court, but the fact is we know how every other justice has voted because they've all voted. And the American people would like to know where you stand on this uh, very important public policy issue, particularly since Sandra Day O'Connor wrote such a compelling uh, decision that uh, was, I think, in the cause of uh, fairness and justice. Well, uh, Senator, I think I can answer the specific questions you, you asked, because as you phrased the question, do you agree with her uh, that it's important to look at the real world significance and impact? And I can certainly say that I do think that that is the appropriate approach without commenting on the outcome of the judgment in a particular case, that you do need to look at the real world impact uh, in, in this area and I think in other areas as well. Thank you very much. My time's up. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Senator Thank you, Kennedy. Senator. Uh, we will now take a 15-minute break. Okay. Uh, we will reconvene at uh, 11.25. Uh, we will resume the hearings. We're just uh, a few minutes tardy because we just finished the vote. Uh, and we now turn to uh, Senator Grassley for his 20-minute second round. Thank you. Once again, uh, compliment you on how you've handled yourself at these hearings. You've done very well. It's going to be very hard for people to cast an old vote against you. Judge Roberts, uh, do you believe that every citizen who meets the qualifications set forth in the Constitution and our laws should have the opportunity to cast a free and unfettered vote? And as a follow-up, will you, uh, on the court, fairly apply the Voting Rights Act? Well, I certainly agree that uh, every citizen who meets the qualifications not only has a right to vote, but should vote. I think it's a, a problem that we don't have more people uh, voting. And any issues that come before me under the Voting Rights Act, uh, I will confront those uh, uh, with an open mind and decide them after full and fair consideration of the arguments in light of the precedence of the court uh, and in light of a recognition of the uh, critical role that the right to vote is, uh, plays as preservative of all other rights. Thank you. Uh, the Supreme Court has repeatedly stated that the legislative history of a particular bill is critical to interpretation of the statute. Of course, Justice Scalia is of the opinion that most expressions of legislative history, like committee reports or uh, statements uh, by the senators on the floor or, or the House are not entitled to great weight because they are unreliable indicators of legislative intent. Presumably Judge Scalia believes that if the members don't actually write a report or don't actually vote on a report then there's no need to defer to this expression of congressional intent. Uh, now obviously I have great regard for Justice Scalia his intellect and legal reasoning, but of course, as I told you in our office, I don't really agree with his position. So asking you, I'd like to ask you five questions. They're relatively short, so I'll ask them all at once. What is your opinion? How important is legislative history to you? Uh, how have you utilized it? And will it be any different 
from your use on the circuit court versus what you might do on the Supreme Court. And did you refer to any committee reports or congressional debate in any of your 39 briefs before the Supreme Court? And uh, to what extent do you, and don't start out with this last one, to what extent do you share Justice Scalia's view on unreliability of legislative history, although that's important? I'd, I'd like, and I can repeat those if you forget what I've asked. Sure. Well, if I if I leave one out, uh, uh, you can remind me at the end. But um, uh, obviously, when you're dealing with interpreting a statute, the most important part is the the text. You begin with the text, and as the Supreme Court has said, in many cases, perhaps most cases, that's also where you end. The answer is clear. Uh, I have, though, uh, uh, as a judge, uh, relied on legislative history to help clarify ambiguity in the text. Uh, uh, the Supreme Court stated once, and I think it's a very important principle, you look to legislative history to clarify ambiguity. You don't look to legislative history to create ambiguity. In other words, if the text is clear, that is what you follow, and that's binding. And you don't look beyond it to say, well, if you look here, though, maybe this clear word should be interpreted a different way. On the other hand, we confront situations where the text is not clear, and the legislative history can be helpful in resolving that ambiguity. Uh, it requires a certain sensitivity to what you're dealing with. Uh, all legislative history is not created equal. There's a difference between the weight that you give a conference report and the weight you give a statement of one legislator on the floor. Uh, you have to, I think, have some degree of sensitivity in understanding exactly what you're looking at, appreciate where those comments were made in the legislative process, be careful to make sure that they're dealing with the same language that was eventually adopted. You have to, for example, be very uh, skeptical about uh, statements by opponents of the bill. It's quite a common thing saying, well, this bill would do this, this, and this, and so we shouldn't pass it. That's not always the best guide as to what the sponsors really intended in the language. Um, so it does require a certain sensitivity to what you're dealing with. But uh, I have uh, quoted and looked to legislative history in the past to help determine the meaning of ambiguous terms. And um, I, I would expect to follow that same approach on the Supreme Court. I don't think there's a difference there uh, in terms of uh, what things you think it is appropriate to look to to help uh, you do your job, which is to uh, uh, figure out what Congress intended. Uh, and you didn't address Judge Scalia, but let me uh, put it another way so I don't put you in a bad position. Uh, you would uh, see, uh, at least in some instances where it needs to be used, reliability in legislative history. Reliability, in some instances, I think uh, if you look at it carefully, you can make an assessment that this is a reliable guide. And one one uh, area I didn't touch on the in my arguments, I've certainly relied on legislative history in presenting arguments because, of course, in the Supreme Court you need five votes and not just the one, so you tend to cast your net as widely as, uh, as possible. And uh, at argument sometimes, uh, uh, Justice Scalia would not be as receptive to an argument based on legislative history as some of the others, but uh, again, uh, the, the name of the game is, is counting to five when you're arguing up there, and so uh, I've certainly made arguments based on legislative history. Okay. Uh, in regard to how you view and use legislative history, I'd like to discuss your opinion in Totten Bombardier Corporation case interpreting the False Claims Act. The issue on appeal was whether Bombardier 
had met the presentment requirements of the False Claims Act to violate the statute according to Section 3729A1, a company must have presented its false claim to an officer or employee of the federal government. Importantly, Section 3729C explicitly provides that the term claim includes demands for payments submitted to government contractors whether or not they are resubmitted to the federal government. In your opinion, you wrote that those facts of that case did not consist of a false claims under the False Claims Act because there can only be a false claims if it's letterly presented to somebody that's a federal government employee, I assume. It seems to me that to reach this result, you inserted a resubmission requirement into the law in place where it doesn't in fact appear, Section 3729A1, and in fact gave short shrift to the legislative history which spelled out what Congress intended when it amended the Act in 86, the legislative history of the Act in the Senate Committee Report. Now, I didn't refer to my authorship of, of the legislation, but uh, anyway, in our city, uh, Senate Committee Report explaining that liability under the False Claims Act attaches to a submission of, and I quote, a false claim to the recipient of a grant from the United States or to a state under a program financed in part by the United States, end of quote. The legislative history also states that Congress sought to ensure that, quote, a false claims was actionable, although the claim or false statements were made to a party other than the government, if the payment thereon would ultimately result in a loss to the United States, end of quote. So my question is whether, on reflection, that is a fair way to deal with the express wishes of Congress and whether it is possible that you misunderstood the statute when you decided Totten case uh, and why did you reject legislative history if you referred to it, maybe you didn't refer to it, but why did you reject legislative history regarding the resubmission requirement in the False Claim Act when you wrote the opinion in Totten? Well, uh, Senator, the answer to your question is it's certainly possible that um, uh, the majority in that case uh, uh, didn't get it right and the dissent that was a very uh, strong dissent did get it right. I, I think the majority got it right. Um, uh, there we focused on particular language. The issue in the case involved, as you know, uh, a, a subcontractor claim. You had the United States giving money to, in this case it was Amtrak, and then Amtrak using that money to hire a subcontractor, I think it was Bombardier, uh, to do a particular part of the, of the job. Um, everybody agreed that under the precedents that are applied, Amtrak is not the government. It can't be considered part of the government. And the, the, the statute, as you noted, required, it was triggered by the presentment of a false claim to an officer or employee of the United States. And the majority's reasoning uh, was that when the false claim was one made by Bombardier uh, to Amtrak, and that claim was submitted to Amtrak, and since Amtrak was not the government, uh, what Judge Rogers and I concluded was that that wasn't presentment of a false claim to an officer or employee of the United States. Um, there was a, an extensive discussion in between the majority and the dissent. You're, the, the view that you've articulated was certainly presented in a compelling way by Judge Garland, my 
colleague on the Court of Appeals, and we spent a great deal of time on the case, and I think it's reflected in the opinions. And uh, uh, that view was laid out. Judge Rogers and I thought that the statutory language that said the claim had to be presented to an officer employee presented too high a hurdle for us to get over in looking at the legislative history. But I'm, I'm happy to concede that it was among the more difficult cases I've had over the past two years. Anytime um, uh, Judge Garland disagrees, you know you're in a, uh, uh, in a, a difficult area and the function of his dissent to make us focus on what we were deciding and to make sure that we felt we were doing the right thing I think was well served. But uh, Judge Garland disagreed and so it's obviously to me a case on which reasonable judges can uh, disagree and I just have to rest on the analysis in the majority opinion. Um, let me tell you something you might not be aware of, and that is that the Bush administration has filed an amicus brief in the 11th Circuit arguing that you had misread the False Claims Act in the Cotton case. And in Atkins versus McIntyre, the administration has argued that there's no presentment requirement in Section 3730A2 of the False Claims Act, and that, quote, the Totten majority misconstrued the language and purpose of the False Claims Act in concluding that the act does not encompass false claims record statements submitted to recipients of federal funds absent resubmission to a United States officer or employee. And I assume if I ask you if you have an opinion on that, you, you well, can't, probably can't answer it. Well, not on that one. I do know the, the Bush administration filed a amicus brief in our, our case as well. Um, I guess this would be one of those cases I would cite in response to the question of whether I'm capable of ruling against uh, the administration. We did in that case. Um, again, uh, the arguments, I think, were well presented on both sides, and um, uh, Judge Rogers and I gave it our best shot, and the opinion will stand or fall on its own. Well, uh I hope sitting in the Marble Palace you'll remember that I have great pride in the success of the False Claims Act. Uh, $8 billion coming back to the Federal Treasury. Judge Roberts, uh, you filed an amicus brief in the case of United States versus Helper, a case which raised the question of whether a civil False Claims Act case could implicate double jeopardy clause. The Supreme Court agreed with your arguments and held that double jeopardy clause protects a convicted criminal defendant from a second punishment in the form of a civil sanction that, quote, may not fairly be characterized as remedial, end of quote, because it is, quote, overwhelmingly disproportionate to the damage the defendant has caused, end of quote. As you know, the helper decision was later overturned by Hudson. Uh, Judge Roberts, do you consider the False Claims Act treble damages provisions to be excessive, in the words of the court, overwhelmingly disproportionate, and also in the words of the court, not fairly characterized as remedial. Well, uh, you've touched on a case that's uh, very close to my heart, uh, Senator. It was the first case I argued uh, before the Supreme Court. Um, I was appointed by the court to argue it on behalf of uh, uh, Mr. Halper. Uh, it was it was an unusual case. It, it arose the the conspiracy at issue was a slight uh, inflation of uh, I believe it was Medicare or Medicaid claims that this individual was submitting. Uh, I think he added a dollar or or two dollars to every claim, um, and yet under the law at that time there was a minimum penalty for each false claim. So 
I, I, these numbers won't be right, but he had something like 300 false claims for a grand total of maybe $700. But under the statute, he was assessed a civil penalty of several million dollars because each of the false claims was uh, a, a separate uh, penalty. And the issue was, after having been sentenced criminally, would a civil penalty of several, and again, I'm not sure the numbers, but several million dollars for $700 or so of uh, fraud, uh, was that remedial and civil or was it, it punishment? And uh, the court agreed with uh, my submission at the time that that was punishment. Um, it led to some difficulty, I think, in administering civil and criminal laws down the line. And as you said, uh, eight years later, they uh, reversed course and overruled um, the helper precedent. But the, the provision that you specifically mentioned, treble damages, that's a little different. There, it's, it's a much closer connection, obviously just three times whatever the damages are. In the helper case, it was a much more disproportionate uh, impact, and that's what led the court, I think, to conclude that that looks like punishment. Treble damages is something that's familiar in the law in a number of areas and isn't is not regarded as impermissible punishment in this context. Uh, are you familiar with the legal arguments that some opponents of the False Claims Act have made to the effect that its KETAM provisions are unconstitutional under Articles 2 and 3? And if so, do you have an opinion on these arguments? And before you answer, I'd like to remind you that uh, at least since the first Congress was involved in this, I'd like to assume that the framers of the Constitution, because the first Congress enacted several KETAM statutes, that if that ha be any deference to you in giving, uh, whether this fact would make any difference to you when assessing the constitutionality of KETAM statutes today. I think, um, if my memory serves, that the Article Three objections, and just so we're on the same page, the Ketom statutes, of course, are when uh, a, a private individual brings suit on behalf of the government for fraud on the government, and in return gets a percentage of the recovery. And as you noted, it's been, under the False Claims Act, very successful in, in securing recovery of, of funds on behalf of the government. Um, the, Vermont, uh, the Vermont case, and I'm not remembering it any more than that, it was a case from Vermont, I think addressed most of the Article Three issues. The objection was that individual has no standing, I think, because he doesn't necessarily have an interest. And what the court said was that the individual has standing as a result of the the bounty, uh, if you will, the, the percentage he gets, that satisfies the standing requirement. So those objections are out of the way. I do know that some have raised additional objections under uh, Article 2, uh, which go to the fact that this uh, might interfere with the executive's authority to execute the law. In other words, you have private individuals bringing suit. Uh, I'm not sure that those issues have been finally resolved, um, and uh, obviously if those cases do come up, I'll want to keep an open mind. The, the factor you mentioned, obviously, about historic practice, that is something that the court does look to uh, in assessing constitutionality, if it's something that the founders uh, were familiar with or a practice that they engaged in and showed no disagreement with, that, while not determinative, uh, that is a factor that the court uh, would look at. Uh, I don't know if any of those cases are going to come before the court, but uh, if they do, uh, it's, that's one of the considerations that will have to be taken into account. Other than uh, Totten case and the Helper case, have you ever written or spoken publicly about the issue 
of the constitutionality of key TAMs or other any other provisions of the False Claims Act uh, to I your memory? I don't remember any, no, Senator. Okay. Uh, Judge Roberts, in 1986, while serving as an associate White House counsel, you approved uh, Reagan administration testimony regarding Whistleblower Protection Act of 1986. You probably recall that the Reagan administration opposed that legislation, which is now law. Could you explain what role, if any, you had in formulating the administration's position on the Whistleblower Protection Act? Um, I don't recall any role, uh, Senator. Our office, uh, the council's office, would routinely review uh, testimony that was about to be given. We were just looking out for particular constitutional concerns or issues. Uh, we generally did not get into the substance. The substance of that would have been shaped over in the Justice Department and our, we, we would have really been looking out for anything that we thought infringed on the uh, constitutional authorities of the President or presented other consistency issues, but the substance of the testimony is not something I was involved in. Do you feel that you have any bias against False Claims Act or the Whistleblower Protection Act that would impact on your ability to fairly decide cases on, the, uh, on those statutes? It's, uh, no, Senator. Um, I have had some whistleblower cases uh, in different aspects. Uh, uh, I do recall coming up in the Court of Appeals, and I, I think in some cases we ruled in favor, in some cases we ruled against. So I have seen those cases and have had no difficulty uh, fairly and objectively uh, deciding them. Are you against uh, cameras in the courtroom like Justice Rehnquist was? Well, you know, my, um, my new best friend, uh, Senator Thompson, assures me that te television cameras are nothing to be afraid of. Uh, but uh, um, I don't have a, a set view on that. Um, uh, I do think it's something that I would have to, I would want to listen to the views of uh, if I were confirmed to my colleagues. I would suggest then to the chairman that we move quickly on that bill before he's got an opinion on it. <laughs> I, I tend to do just that, Senator Grassley, now that I have your support. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Grassley. Senator Biden. Good morning, Judge. How are you? Good morning, Senator. Fine, thanks. I went back and looked at uh, something you said yesterday, which was reminded. I was reminded by my son, who's done some appellate work, nothing like you, and uh, he, he said, I thought I heard, heard him say this, and then I went to staff, got it. Yesterday morning you said, I went back once and counted the questions during my half hour. There were over 100 questions the court asked. So you're not all offended by us interrupting you like we do. You're used to being interrupted, aren't you? I'm used to being interrupted before the court, that's yeah. for sure, Senator. Well, we're, well, we're kind of court here. We're kind of court. You're not entitled to the job. God love you. You're been nominated, and your job is to demonstrate that uh, um, there's no presumption, as you well know. So, uh, so I hope you won't mind some questions. I promise I won't interrupt if you give short answers. Okay? I'll try, Senator. All right, great. Um, uh, I'd like to follow up on yesterday. I asked you if you agreed there was a right of privacy to be found in the uh, Liberty Clause of the 14th Amendment, and you said, and I quote, I do, Senator. I think, the court's ex I think that the court's expression, and I think if my reading of the precedent is correct, I think every justice on the court believes that to some extent or another, believes that to some extent or another. Is that correct? Yes. Now, you, one of the things that's been amazing, and you are one of the best witnesses that I think has come before this committee, and I've been here 30-some years, um, and uh, uh, is that you've convinced uh, um, the folks uh, who share 
Senator Brownback's view that you're going to be just right for them. And you convinced the folks that share Senator Kennedy's view that you're going to be just right for them. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, and I think I'd like to plumb a little bit more closely um, uh, this notion of how you view um, uh, this, this right of privacy. Now, if you take a look at um, um, Justice, Justice uh, Scalia's um, comment about that right to privacy found the 14th Amendment is related to the Casey case. He said, the issue is whether abortion is liberty protected by the Constitution of the United States. I am sure it is not because of two simple facts. The Constitution says absolutely nothing about it and the long-standing traditions, etc. Then, on that same case, the uh, quote uh, um, uh, coming from, uh, i got to make sure I get the right justice here, um, from O'Connor, Kennedy and Souter dissent, they said, the liberty of a woman is at stake in a sense unique to the human condition and so unique to the law. The mother who carries a child a full term is subject to anxieties and physical constraints, the pain that only she must bear. Her suffering is too intimate and personal for the state to insist without more upon its own versions of woman's role. Two fundamentally different views of the right to privacy as it relates to that issue. In Cruzan, um, the case relating to whether or not uh, fully competent adults have the right to refuse uh, unwanted medical treatment. Uh, Justice Scalia said in his opinion that, quote, that the federal court have no business in this field, that American law has always accorded the state the power to prevent, by force if necessary, suicide, including suicide by refusing appropriate measures necessary to preserve one's life. Justice Kennedy, in the same, in the same case, as you well, I know you know all this, but it's, uh, I just want to try to get a sense where you are. He said, liberty presumes an autonomy of self that includes freedom of thought, freedom of expression, uh, excuse me, belief. I mean, let me rephrase that, restate it. Liberty presumes an autonomy of self that includes freedom of thought, belief, expression, and certain intimate conduct. The instant case involves liberty of a person both in its spatial and in its transcendental dimensions. Obviously, fundamentally different. And then the same goes uh, um, uh, when, when he talks about uh, when O'Connor says, I agree that the protected liberty interest in refusing unwanted medical treatment may be inferred from our prior decisions and that refusal of artificially delivered food or water is encompassed within the liberty interest. Justice Brennan so. The point I'm making is obvious, that there are very, very, very disparate views. Can you tell me what's, what's, what side you come down closer on? Well, uh, Senator, first I'm of all... I'm asking you to comment on any case. Well, um, I, I can say that uh, it is my view that all of the justices, I think of the case like the Glucksburg case, in which uh, the majority subscribe to the view that there is an appropriate mode of analysis to determine the content of the liberty clause, that it does include protection beyond physical restraint, and that that protection applies in a substantive manner. Um, now, there are legal theorists, there are judges, jurists, who do not agree with that, who do not agree that there is a right of privacy protected uh, under the due process clause who do not agree that the liberty protected extends beyond freedom from physical restraint. Their view is that it means 
you cannot be basically imprisoned or arrested without due process and that means only that you get some type of procedural protection. Um, that is not my understanding of where the justices on the Supreme Court are uh, and it's not my understanding. Uh, I believe that the liberty protected by the due process clause is not limited to freedom from physical restraint that it includes certain other protections including the right to privacy as you know that the, that the court has tried to map out in a series of cases that go back to Meyer versus Nebraska and Pierce and all that and in, the, in, in various instances as the claims have arisen uh, and that it's protected not simply from procedural deprivation. That is... If I may interrupt, I, I, that's not the question I ask you. Thank you for that lesson. Um, and, uh, um, uh, and, I, and I understand what you're saying. I'm asking you a specific question. Well, and do you side more with within that context with the views of Scalia and Thomas would say that consenting adults do not have, whether if they're both male or female, do not have the right to engage in sexual conduct. The state can determine that. I mean, let me, let me, put, let me put it another way. My family faced, I'm sure many people in this audience families faced the difficult decision of deciding uh, when to no longer continue the application of artificial apparatus to keep your father or mother or husband or wife or son or daughter alive. Um, it's a great moment to the American public now. Um, and uh, there is a view expressed by Justice Scalia that there is no right that is absolute on the part, or no fundamental right that exists um, for a family member, assuming the person is not capable of making the decision themselves, to make that judgment. He says, and I'm speaking in layman's terms, he says the state legislature can make that decision. I firmly believe, unless there's some evidence that the family is incompetent, the husband or the wife, with the advice of the doctor, should be able to make that decision. What do you think? Well, Senator, that does get into an area that is coming before the court. There's a case pending on the docket right now that raises the question of whether or not state legislatures have a prerogative to lay down rules on certain end-of-life issues. Well, well suicide, that, isn't it, Judge? Well, in that case, it's the, the application of the federal controlled substantive law. Right. The issue of uh, illness in those cases do come before the court. The Glucksburg case raised uh, a similar question. The Cruzan case that you mentioned presented it in a very difficult context of an incompetent individual no longer uh, able to make a decision and the question of how the state law should apply in that situation. Those cases do come before the court. Do you think the state, had, well just talk to me as a father. Don't talk to me. Just tell me, just philosophically, what do you think? Do you think that is, that is uh, not what the Constitution says, what do you feel? Do you feel personally, if you're willing to share with us, that that the decision of whether or not to remove a feeding tube after a family member is no longer capable of making the judgment, They're, they are comatose, uh, um, uh, to prolong that life should be one that, uh, that the legislators in Dover, Delaware should make or my mother well, should I'm make. not going to consider issues like that in the context as a father or a husband or, or anything else. Um, uh, well, you did, I think. Sorry. I think obviously, uh, uh, putting aside any of those considerations, these issues uh, are the most difficult we face um, uh, as, as people um, uh, and they are profoundly 
affected by uh, views of uh, individuality and moral views uh, and uh, deeply personal views. Now, uh, that's obviously true as a general matter, but at the same time, the position of a judge uh, is not to incorporate his or her personal views in deciding issues of this sort. Um, if you're interpreting a particular statute that governs in this area, your job as a judge is to interpret and apply that according to the rule of law. If you're addressing claims of a fundamental right under the uh, liberty protected by the due process clause, again, the view of a judge on a personal matter or a personal level is not the guide to the decision. Right. Well, and judge, let me ask you then, with your permission, about uh, your constitutional view. Do you think the Constitution encompasses a fundamental right for my father to conclude that he does not want to continue, he does not want to continue on a life support system. Well, Senator, I can't answer that question in the abstract because... Not abstract, that's real. Well, Senator, as a legal matter, it is abstract because the question would be in any particular case, uh, is there a law that applies that governs that decision? What does the law apply? That's, that's the question, Judge. Well, can no. any law, can any law trump a fundamental right to die? Not to commit suicide, a right to decide. I no longer want to be hooked up to this machine. The only thing is keeping me alive. I no longer want to have this feeding tube in my stomach. A decision that I know I've personally made and many people out here have made. And the idea that a state legislature could say to my mom, your father wants the feeding tube removed. He's asked me. The doctors heard it. And the state legislatures decided that no, it can't be removed. Are you telling me that's even in play? Well, Senator, what I'm telling you is, as you know, there are cases that come up in exactly that context so that it is in play in the sense there that there are cases involving disputes between people asserting their rights to terminate life, to remove feeding tubes, either on their own behalf or on behalf of others. There are, is legislation that states have passed in this area that governs that, and there are claims that are raised that the legislation is unconstitutional. Those are issues that come before the court, um, and as a result, um, I will confront those issues in light of the court's precedence with an open mind. I will not take to the court whatever personal views I have on the issues, and I appreciate the sensitivity involved. They won't be based on my personal views. They'll be based on my understanding of the law. That's what I want to know about because without any knowledge of your understanding of the law, because you will not share it with us, we are rolling the dice with you, Judge. We are going to face decisions, you are, and the American public is going to face decisions about whether or not, as I said, patients, uh, patents can be issued for uh, uh, the creation of human life. We're going to be, you're going to be faced with decisions about whether or not um, there is a right to refuse uh, extraordinary medical, um, uh, um, uh, heroic medical efforts that you don't want as an individual, and you're fully capable mentally of making that decision. And the idea that without a specific pack, fact pattern before you, as someone keeps, it keeps getting repeated here, 
The law is about life. It's about facts. Specific facts. When I'm asking you, there's no fact situation before you about whether or not a person fully mentally capable of making a decision chooses to say, I no longer want this feeding tube in my stomach. Please remove it. And whether or not that is a fundamental constitutional right. Senator, that's asking me for an opinion in the abstract on a question that will come before the court. And when that question does come before the court, the litigants before me are entitled to have a justice deciding their case with an open mind based on the arguments presented, based on the precedents presented. I've told you uh, with respect how I would go about deciding that case. It begins with the recognition that the liberty protected by the Due Process Clause does extend to matters of privacy, that it's not limited to restraints on physical freedom, uh, and that that protection is protected in a sub extends in a substantive way and not simply procedurally. I have also explained the sources that judges look to in determining the content of that privacy protected by the Liberty Clause. They're the ones that have been spelled out in the court's opinions, the nation's history, traditions, and practices. And I've explained how judges apply that history, tradition, and practices in light of the limited role of a judge uh, to interpret the law and not make the law, the limited well, role of the judge in light of the prerogatives uh, of the legislature. Judge, I understand that. Uh, Justice Scalia says the same thing and draws a very fundamentally different conclusion than O'Connor. Fundamentally. So you've told me nothing, Judge. With all due respect, you've not... Look, this is... It's kind of interesting, this kabuki dance we have in these hearings here. As if the public doesn't have a right to know what you think about fundamental issues facing them. There's no more possibility that any one of us here would be elected to the United States Senate without expressing broadly and sometimes specifically to our public what it is we believe. The idea that the founders sat there and said, oh, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to require the two elected branches to answer questions of the public with no presumption they should have the job as senator, president, or congressman. But guess what? We're going to have a third co-equal branch of government that gets to be there for life, never, ever, ever again to be able to be asked a question they don't want to answer. And you know what? He doesn't have to tell us anything. It's okay as long as he is, as you are, a decent, bright, honorable man. That's all we need to know. That's all we need to know. Look, let's, I only have three minutes and 45 seconds left. And by the way, I'd ask uh, permission for the record to introduce the number of questions asked by Senator Hatch and others, very specific questions asked to uh, Justice O'Connor with very specific answers on these very questions. Uh, I'd like to ask for that to be submitted for the record. Without objection, they will be made a part of the record. Let me Senator, conclude by, if, I, if I, I still have the floor and I'll, be yield, I'll yield to you since you can speak after the clock's out, I can't, okay? I'm sure you understand that. Um, and I'm sure if I'm ever before the Supreme Court, you'll give me more time you won't interrupt me. Um, the, uh, uh, all kidding, uh, the, look, um, here's, here, here, here's the point I want to make. I asked, and I'm, I'm sure you're not going to answer it. I asked Justice Ginsburg the question about footnote 5 in the Michael H. case. And the whole issue there is, as you well know, whether or not you keep talking, it sounds wonderful to the uneducated ear, the non-lawyer's ear, that I'm going to look at history and tradition. You and I both know how you determine history and tradition determines outcomes. In that case, as you'll recall, 
there was a question of whether or not a, a, the natural father, you could prove by a blood test and DNA that he was the natural father of a child he wanted to see that happened to be born to a woman who was living with her married husband. So the child was illegitimate, right? And so in determining whether or not there are any visitation rights, there's a famous footnote there. And I'm going to do this quickly at two minutes and seven seconds. The court said, Scalia said in footnote six, look, you go back and look at the specific historical precedent. Short-circuiting it. Have bastards ever been protected in the law? And Brandon said, no, 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 that's not what you go back. You go back and look at fatherhood. Was fatherhood ever something that's part of the traditions and part of the embraced notions of what we hold dear? Is that worthy of protection? Now, Scalia said, no, 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 no. I looked up the record. Bastards have never been protected in English common law. Therefore, there's nothing going on here. And by the way, you should never go back, he says, and look at the general proposition. Has fatherhood achieved the status of consequence? No, it's have bastards achieved. So, judge, how do you, I'm not asking you in that case, how do you, do you look at the narrowest reading of whether or not such an asserted right has ever been protected, or do you look at it accordingly? What is the methodology you use? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think you're quite right that that is quite often the critical question in these cases, the degree of generality at which you define what the tradition, the history, and the practice you're, you're looking at. The example I think that's, uh, I've always found it easiest to grasp was the, was loving against Virginia. Do you look at the history of miscegenation statutes or do you look at the history of marriage and 33 uh, seconds left do you agree with O'Connor then well I get extra time you said I know the, but I uh, but I don't I got to get it in now <laughs> before the chairman judge, judge Roberts when his red light goes on you'll have as much time as you want thank you uh, the uh, point is that again the court has precedence on precisely that question about how you should phrase the level of generality and you look but at which case, precedent do you agree with there's there's completing they're competing precedents well you, you do not look at the level of generality that is the issue that's being challenged so for example in loving versus virginia if the challenge is it seems to me and this is what the court's precedents say if the challenge is to miscegenation uh, statutes that's not the level of generality because you're going to answer it's completely certain no, that's, but that's specific judge the generality was the right to marry well that's, that's what the I'm, generality that's what i'm saying the dispute is do you look at it at that level of specificity or broader and i'm saying you do not look at at a the narrowest level of generality which is the statute that's being challenged because obviously that's completely circular you're saying there is obviously that statute uh, that's part of the history so you look at it at a broader level of generality now the only point I was going to make earlier because I do think it's an important one you make the point that we stand for election and we wouldn't be elected if we didn't tell people what we stand for judges don't stand for election I'm not standing for election and it is contrary to the role of judges in our society to say that this judge should go on the bench because these are his or her positions and those are the positions they're going to apply judges go on the bench and they apply and decide cases according to the judicial process not on the basis of promises made earlier to get elected or promises made earlier to get confirmed that's inconsistent with the independence and integrity of the Supreme Court. No one's asking for a promise. 
Thank you very much, Thank Senator you. Biden. Thank you, Judge. Thank you, Senator. Senator Kyle? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I think this last exchange uh, is important because um, it goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning when some of us in our opening statements pledged to defend you if you um, stopped short of answering every question the way that every senator uh, felt uh, important based upon your view that the matter in question might come before the court, that the canons of judicial ethics preclude you from doing that. A very wise senator uh, on this committee once said something. Let me uh, quote it to you. And by the way, I, I contend that he is still wise. But I'm the wise one. <clears throat> I, I'm sorry? Um, it's, um, and, and this is what he said. Uh, Judge, you not only have a right to choose what you will answer and not answer, but in my view, you should not answer a question of what your view will be on an issue that clearly is going to come before the court in 50 different forms, probably over your tenure on the court. Now, as I said, that, that was wise then. It's wise now. It is the statement of then Chairman Joseph Biden in the Ginsburg hearings. And in all sincerity, uh, I do believe Senator Biden to be wise, and I believe that that comment is wise. It's what's animated your uh, approach to answering probably by now hundreds of questions that have been asked of you. And you've answered every question. In some cases, however, you have stopped short of advising us um, what you believe the law to be because you felt that that matter was going to come before the court. But you didn't stop there. When permitted, you, you expanded to tell us why, why you thought uh, it was a matter that might come before the court and what your general approach to the case would be in terms of your judicial philosophy, how you would approach judging the case, but that you didn't want to talk about your view of what the law was, both because the case uh, uh, could come before the court and also because it's pretty hard to formulate in a question all of the factual considerations that would permit you to know what law would be specifically applicable to that particular case. And you and I talked a little bit about the facial challenge to statutes versus the as-applied kind of problem. Um, so with respect to this last uh, interchange you had with, uh, with Senator Biden, uh, and, and by the way, I'll, I'll say uh, again to compliment my colleagues, if, if anybody ever contended that senators weren't um, uh, both diligent in pursuing uh, what they want to pursue and also very imaginative, um, they should watch this hearing because uh, we've been blessed with, uh, with most creative ways of trying to pull out of you commitments on matters that senators would like to have you make commitments on. But as Senator Biden just said, um, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, he said, without the knowledge of your personal views, he was talking at the time about end-of-life issues, we're rolling the dice. And your response to that, as I understand it, is my personal views are irrelevant to a case that comes before me of Jones versus Smith, of X versus Y. What I personally think about issues has nothing to do with the resolution of the dispute between those two parties. And were I to let them intrude, I would not be doing my job as a judge, fairly taking the facts of their case and then applying the law that I understand it to be to reach a decision. Moreover, uh, Judge, isn't it the case that if you were to uh, state your, your views on such uh, subjects as they might pertain to a case that would come before the court, 
wouldn't you actually have to recuse yourself from, from deciding that, that case, and therefore all of the discussion, all of the effort to get you committed to a particular point of view would be for naught, because if you expressed it, you couldn't sit on the case anyway, or am I incorrect in that? I, I think that's a concern that other nominees have raised uh, in, in the past, particularly given the expression of the views as part of the confirmation process. Um, it's, it's not uh, supposed to be a bargaining process. And if you start stating views with respect to particular issues of concern to one senator, then obviously everyone's going to have their list. Um, and when that individual nominee, if confirmed, if the bargain is successful from his or her point of view and he gets confirmed, uh, he'll have to begin each case not with the party's briefs and arguments, but with the transcript of the confirmation hearing to see what he or she swore to under oath was their view in a particular area of law or a particular case. And I think that would be, uh, would undermine the independence of the Supreme Court. It would undermine the integrity of the judicial process. Uh, every one of the justices on the court today, uh, every one of them refused to engage in that type of uh, process, and if I'm to sit with them, if I am confirmed, I feel I have to follow the same approach. Now, I do think I've been more expansive uh, than most nominees. Uh, I've gone back and read the transcripts, and some of them would not talk about particular cases, even if it were unlikely that the case was going to come before the court. And the reason they gave was, look, it's hard to draw the line. If I think this case is not going to come before the court, what about this one? And maybe that will. And rather than trying to draw the line, I'm just not going to do it. Uh, and those justices were confirmed. Um, I've taken what I think is a more pragmatic approach. If I think an issue is not likely to come before the court, I have told the committee what my views on that case uh, were and what my views on that case are. Um, uh, you know, perhaps that means I'm in, uh, draw it's sometimes difficult to draw the line. Perhaps that's right. Uh, but again, if, if I make the judgment, and other nominees may draw the line differently, uh, uh, may have drawn it differently in the past or differently in the future. The, the, the nominee, I think, has to be comfortable with the proposition that they're not doing anything that's going to undermine the integrity of the, uh, uh, the court. Well, and I noted yesterday in response to a question, uh, uh, you said, well, that's, that's the reward for trying to be more expansive. I, you were talking uh, about Griswold versus Connecticut at the time, and I thought at the time, uh, boy, he's, uh, he's expressing a view on a relatively recent case. Uh, and at least issues associated with it are clearly going to come before the court. And I, I, I wondered, uh, does, that, does, it, does that go too far? Does that cross the line? But y your point was the specific issue in the case and the precise holding of the case are not likely, in your, in your view, to come before the court. And therefore, you expressed uh, your opinion about that case uh, and the law underlining the ruling in the case. Uh, so I would agree with you that not only have you um, have you attempted to answer every one of our questions, but uh, you, you have also um, ventured into expressing your personal views on matters that you didn't think would come before the court, although, as you note, it's at least possible that some of them might, so hopefully you haven't gone too far there. Um, this, I, I think, is a great civics lesson. Um, some of this hearing should be encapsulated in, in law school courses uh, to remind us about the difference between elected officials who make policy and judges who are not supposed to make policy. I thought the questioning, I believe it was by Senator Brownback earlier, was instructive. You noted that the primary check and balance on the judiciary was its own self-restraint. Many of us believe that the court has not exercised appropriate self-restraint in all cases. 
and that when it doesn't, it naturally generates uh, concern expressed by the citizens of the country as reflected certainly by their elected representatives. And, uh, and we do express that concern. I think the court has failed to exercise appropriate restraint in several matters. And um, one of the things that appeals to me from your approach to the law is that it appears to be a very traditional approach which is that I'm not sent there to make law. I'm sent there to take whatever case comes before us and just decide the case. And uh, that element of self-restraint and modesty is one which I think uh, should be more uh, the rule uh, than, than it is today in courts at all levels. And I would commend that philosophy to, uh, to all of the judges. Uh, I think you've expressed it very well, and uh, while I appreciate my colleagues' desire to try to draw you out on your personal views about matters, I, I think you have drawn the line at an appropriate place, and you've certainly provided us with a great deal of, uh, of information in the process. And again, partly because you've explained to us uh, when you could not completely satisfy uh, Senator's curiosity why that was the case, but still tried to inform us about uh, the, uh, the basic issues that might exist in the case, the basic arguments that would be made on either side, uh, but without giving us a hint as to which one of those you thought you might, uh, uh, might come down on the, on the side of. And I also think it's important that you have totally eschewed ideology here, saying that your own personal views or ideology don't have a place um, in, in your decision making and therefore they don't have, uh, are pretty irrelevant to the questions that are asked here. Um, I've got a whole notebook of questions uh, here that to one extent or another have been dealt with, I think, by colleagues, and I, I don't think it serves purpose to go over them again. Let, let me just conclude with kind of a general comment, but before I do, um, just uh, try to correct the record on, on or not necessarily correct, but add to the record on one very narrow point. Uh, you were discussing, I believe, with Senator Kennedy, the uh, Herrera versus Collins case, and he talked about uh, innocence claims uh, being um, uh, heard uh, by, the, by the court, that, a, that a, a prisoner should have the right to present innocence claims. I just wanted to ask you, is it not the case that in that uh, Herrera versus Collins case that it did not address the proper route for bringing claims based on newly discovered forensic evidence such as DNA testing, which is, of course, a relatively new phenomenon now, but that was not the issue presented in that case? Uh, that's right. There wasn't, um, I don't know if they had as much access to that type of evidence back then when it was argued, but it was certainly not that type of evidence. It was a new claim uh, that somebody else did it, uh, somebody who just died. Uh, that was the new claim of, of, uh, that they sought to raise at the, at the last uh, stage there. Um, and I do think any issue arising with respect to DNA evidence, and those issues are working their ways way up through the court, uh, those cases would have to be addressed on their own terms. Yeah, thank you. Well, let me conclude with this point. <clears throat> Some uh, who are watching might, might come to the conclusion that there's a lot of repetition here <clears throat> and uh, that to some extent uh, there's a lot of senator talk expressing concern to you about different issues that, that, uh, that are important to them. Um, frankly, I think this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity uh, it is the only time that, before you uh, take your position on the court, you'll have the opportunity to be directly lobbied in the political context. 
uh, in an appropriate way. We reflect the views of our constituents. And we've all got different issues on our minds. And, and there isn't one of them that is not a legitimate issue or concern. Uh, I, I brought up the, the, the matter of applying foreign law to American decisions uh, on our Constitution. Uh, for example, it seems to me appropriate that you hear from us, the political branch, concerns that we have about the way that the court approaches its job. Uh, we may be right, we may be wrong, but it's important for you to hear that. I know that justices read the newspapers and so on, but this is a very good forum to have ex expressed to you concerns that we have about various issues, and we wouldn't be talking about them if we didn't think that they would come before the court. So in a sense, virtually everything we're talking about, we're, we're trying in some way to get a point across to you because we believe it is likely to be decided by you. And I think that's fine. You need to hear from us what our concerns are, even though perhaps we're trying to draw you out in areas that you obviously can't be drawn out in uh, uh, with respect to future cases. Uh, it's also important for us to get the feedback from you. There won't be very many other times that we will have as a group of senators to sit down with the person that will likely be the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and have a legal conversation with you. Um, we'll have to talk about matters relating to court administration. That'll be totally appropriate, and I'm sure we'll be doing that. But by and large, this is the only chance we have to have this kind of an interchange with you. It is illuminating to me as a student of constitutional law, as someone who's practiced before the court. I've learned a lot. And therefore, to those who on the outside say, well, it looks like a lot of senators posturing, uh, if they're listening very closely to your answers, I think they will they will find a great deal of, of meat, of knowledge, of the application of your wisdom to how you approach judging. And I find it very consistent with the traditions of our court and the rule of law in our country. And this, therefore, becomes a very good reminder of what our rule of law is all about, what judging is based on, and the interrelationship between the representative bodies of our government and the third branch, which you represent. I think this is all very instructive, very informative, and in my case, at least, with regard to your testimony, uh, very comforting, because it seems to me that you are following the great tradition of the court in your approach to the law, uh, that you are careful, that you are cautious, and yet you are willing to, to look at the circumstances of our contemporary times in applying your judgment to the law that is before you. And because I, I have that confidence, it's my intention to support your nomination. And um, uh, because I, I think it unnecessary to delve into any other specific questions, uh, I will yield back the remaining five minutes of my time. Mr. Chairman, Senator Biden, a point of personal privilege, as we say in this body. Since on, on, on my time, since I had five minutes and I referred to Senator Biden, please. Thank you. Take my I just, uh, I've been quoted many times about what I said to Justice Ginsburg. With the permission of the chairman, let's just take a second. I'd like to read my whole quote, if I may, and then Senator submit Biden, it all for the record. You may do that. Uh, you even have more time. Senator Krause did. No, no, I, I don't want to use the time. Uh, let me just say, here's what else I said. I said, now, I hope, as I said to you very briefly, that the way in which you outline the circumstances under which you would reply and not reply, that you will not make a blanket refusal to comment on things, because obviously everything we could ask you is bound to come before the court. There is not a controversial issue in this country. 
that does not have the prospect of coming before the court. If continuing, if a nominee, although it is their right, does not answer questions that don't go to the way they would decide, but how they would decide, I will vote against that nominee regardless of who it is. It's a continuing to quote. And you can thank Justice Scalia for that. At the close of the testimony, I said, I would also point out that my concerns about you not answering questions have been met. You've answered my questions the second day and the third day. At least from my perspective, you've been forthcoming as any recent witness has. I submit the entire statement for the record along with the answers to her questions from Senator Hatch, you, and others. Without objection, they will be made a part of the record. I thank the chairman for his courtesy, and I thank the, uh, the witness for listening. It is now 12.30, and a vote, two votes have been scheduled at this time. So we will uh, take a lunch recess until, until 1.45, quarter of two. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Audible thanks you for listening to the Senate Judiciary Committee's hearings on the nomination of Judge John Roberts to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Please visit audible.com for the best downloadable audiobooks, as well as subscriptions and podcasts of top audio programs, including Fresh Air, Car Talk, Scientific American, Harvard Business Review, and Charlie Rose. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.